0: Nations and states that they decided how to respond to COVID based on California, like, in other words, uh, California culture determined how we responded to COVID more than Gavin Newsom. And the Swedish culture determined is why they had a different response to COVID than, say, uh, uh, Germany or South Korea. These things come from within. They're not imposed by, they're not imposed by who has less of a role than we think and culture has more of a role unfortunately somebody
1: made it virtually impossible for you to get ivermectin even though it might have been just the thing to protect your family
0: but is it hard to get
1: yeah very okay it was confiscated at the border yeah um, your pharmacist your doctor could say yes this is what you need prescribe it and your pharmacist would refuse to fill the prescription they made it extremely difficult but
0: whether or not there were school lockdowns
1: or school mm-hmm. closures yep came from within there was certainly a uh, patchwork of different reactions across the country, but certain things were centralized like Mm -hmm. thou shalt not have ivermectin. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's complicated. Yeah. Welcome to my house. Thank you. Um, thank you for welcoming to me, welcoming me to your house. Welcome to the Dark Horse Podcast, Michael Schallenberger.
0: Thank you, Brad. My pleasure. Um,
1: we have been traveling in... Uh, I don't know that circles can be parallel. I have a feeling they can be, but um, geometry aside, we have been traveling in parallel circles for some time. This is the first time we have met. That's You've right. We've corresponded a little bit. Yeah. Um, I think the... I'd like to start by offering you an apology. Now, I have said this to you privately, but... Um, I believe I misjudged you and um, I think it is very important that when you misjudge a person that uh, you put things right. So the substance of of my misjudging you has to do with our disagreement, which we still have over nuclear power. Um, You are a strong advocate for fission power as a part or maybe the crucial piece of the solution to the environmental problem that you and I both agree is paramount. Um, You know, I think some of our friends on the right remain to be convinced of that. Um, But nonetheless, we have a serious environmental problem. Part of it is about the way we fuel our civilization. and. Um, the question of whether or not nuclear power, and in particular uranium-based fusion power, plays an important role in that is is a question. But because of your strong advocacy for nuclear power, uh, I wasn't so sure about you. And I have now seen you discuss many more topics and... Um, my sense is, you know, maybe you have something to teach me about n- nuclear power. Maybe I have something to teach you. Um, but regardless, I read you as a well-intentioned guy trying to get humanity out of a pickle. And in that, we are both on that same mission. Um, I, I feel I feel bad that I uh, I assumed the worst of you. Well,
0: thank you very much. Well, apology accepted. accepted. Um So let's um,
1: set the stage a little bit. Many in my audience will be familiar with you. Some will not. Um, You are fresh from a, I'm sorry to say, a defeat in your attempt to get into a runoff with the governor of California. Um, My condolences. I I don't have a vote in California anymore, but had I a vote, I certainly would have cast it in your direction. And I advocated that my my followers and people who pay attention to me should have done the same. Um, And I'm sorry it didn't. Didn't work out. appreciate that. Um, Maybe not that surprising in light of the way power avoids confrontation with honorable people. Um, So in some ways, uh, it saw you coming and it understood (laughs) the threat, even if others didn't necessarily know what you had in mind. (laughs) It could be. This episode is sponsored by American Hartford Gold. Inflation is at its highest level in 40 years. We all feel it at the grocery store and the fuel pump. Interest rates are soaring, and retirement accounts are in real danger. If you want to better protect your family, you should consider that people have been putting wealth into precious metals for thousands of years. The more uncertain access to other stores of value gets, the more precious precious metals are likely to become. Call American Hartford Gold to see how easy it is to get started. They can show you how to protect your savings and retirement accounts by diversifying your portfolio with physical gold and silver. If you're concerned that sounds a little retro, just call it analog gold and you're back at the cutting edge. All it takes to get started is a short phone call and they'll have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or inside your IRA or 401k. They are the highest rated firm in the country with an A-plus rating from the Better Business Bureau and thousands of satisfied clients. Call them now and they will give you a percentage of your first qualifying order back in free silver. Call American Hartford Gold at 866-828-1117. That's 866-828-1117. Or text Dark Horse to 998899. Again, that's 866-828-1117. Or text Dark Horse to 998899. <laughs> um, and I should also, before uh, I let you talk a little bit about um, your experience running for, for governor, um, I should also point out that uh, you have written a number of books, Apocalypse Never and uh, San Francisco, um, which every time Heather says it, she says San Francisco and then has to correct herself. Um, But uh, are these the only two books you've written?
0: I co-authored a prior book in 2007, but these are my sole authored two books,
1: sole authored books. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Um, I have not read both of them, but I have read in both of them and they're they're. Quite an interesting read. Thank you. I would recommend people take a look at them. So, all right, what is the experience? We're now what a week out from the election? Mm, less than a week out.
0: Um, you know, I how am I doing? Um, well, <laughs> I told you that. You know, on the one hand, I'm the kind of person that I always need a goal or a project that I'm working on, or I get bored and slightly depressed. So I pretty quickly, you know, we knew that we were, we were unlikely to win because we weren't raising the money that we needed to raise. So we knew that about a month ago. Um, So I spent some time being disappointed before the election, certainly some disappointment after I tried to start working on my new book and I just decided not to uh, yet. I'm going to have to turn to it soon, but just basically been um, binge watching some television and continuing my routine. You know, I started a serious running routine when I ran, uh, when I decided to run for governor and I've been maintaining that. And that's been very positive for my psychological health. So I would say I'm doing, I'd say I'm on my road to recovery. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent.
2: <laughs>
1: well, um, I don't know how much you know about uh, what I was up to during the last presidential election, but I put together a, a proposal to get us out of the death spiral that the, the duopoly has us in. Um, we also did not succeed, you will notice, in uh, disrupting the duopoly's plans and uh, Joe Biden has, has ascended to the office. But nonetheless, I do think one of the meta lessons of the moment for heterodox thinkers like you and me and Andrew Yang and Tulsi Gabbard and Justin Amash and all of those people who have looked at our system and thought there has to be a better way. Um, We have to recognize that uh, effectively power has figured out how to make itself very difficult to displace. And to the extent that we patriots who uh, long for a democracy open enough that um better people could simply ascend to office and do the right thing based on the wise counsel of whoever they might have advised them that all of us who who see that need to recognize that it might be time to team up because each one of us who tries to do this independently is going to discover the same thing which is it's not uh, It's not an open system. It's Mm -hmm. a system that may have a, you know, a way to uh, formally enter it, but it does not have a practical way. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't know. Do you know, uh, Andrea? Uh, We follow
0: each other on Twitter, but I don't know personally. Yeah, we've got him. Um, So, and Justin Amash? I mean, I know who's the libertarian presidential candidate, but I don't know him personally. Yeah, yeah, and Tulsi Gabbard. Same. Okay. Yeah.
1: So somehow, uh, yeah. you and I are finally meeting. Yeah. Um, but there are many of us out here who, uh, I don't like to use the terms, you know, that suggest that these are enemies. But at some level, something has hijacked our democracy, and it is doing terrible things um, through uh, malignant mm-hmm. governance and uh maybe maybe it is time we put our heads together and figured out how to um, how to dislodge it yeah um all right so nuclear power is the issue on which i became aware of you first uh do you want to talk about that or do you want to start with um your signature issue from from the campaign
0: Oh sure, I mean we could go either. I mean, um, I was you, you got me thinking about politics just now, and uh, just to affirm, it's a very hard question. I mean, I think there's some questions around what is the question, um, and what what is important for us to talk about. I've certainly spent a bunch of time talking about homelessness. Spent a bunch of time talking about nuclear. You're asking some questions. I, I think what I hear you asking about are questions around how do we translate this really exciting, interesting. Uh, heterodoxical movement that that once was known as the IDW and may <laughs> still be known by some of us that are loyal to the IDW. But how does that translate into political change? I have friends on the political right who think that I am deeply naive for attempting to be an independent. Uh, Dave Rubin, Chris Rufo, are friends of mine that are now fully Republican. Um, Dave is, uh, I believe he's a Trump supporter, um, and Chris uh, Rufo works closely with uh, Governor DeSantis in Florida. I have other friends, close friends, family that just think Republicans are evil. I think that Trump is a would-be dictator. We talked a little bit before, uh, I voted for Clinton and Biden. I did not vote for Trump. I do not, there's things about Trump I do not like. There's other things about Trump that I actually appreciate, including changing the Republican Party's position on entitlements, changing the Republican Party's position on gay and lesbian, uh, affirming gay and lesbian relationships, and taking a stronger position against military intervention abroad. But there's other things, the way he spoke about women, the way he spoke about disabled people, the, his some of the personality stuff, and the chaos. Um, there was a lot of big clown energy in Trump that I think was destructive and not, and need, we needed some stabi- stability, which is why I voted for Biden. But obviously, Biden, I think you and I would probably agree, has been a terrible president. Um, so, what do we do? Well, let me just say, yeah. Biden has been a an absolute
1: disaster, a predictable one. I didn't vote for him. Um, I didn't vote for Trump either
0: did you go for Justin Amash
1: no I voted for Tulsi Gabbard okay um, yeah you know the fact is and, and this is something I believe people in your position and my position need to confront others who are fed up with our system over I know far too many incredibly smart people who have arrived at what I think is the incredibly foolish choice to not vote and the problem is as I see it, is that when you don't vote, you become indistinguishable from all of the people who don't vote because they're apathetic. And I get that you don't have a vote in front of you that makes sense and that you personally may feel that you're protesting by not voting, but why would you deny the power of your vote to all of those of us who are trying to figure out how to dislodge the duopoly before it's too late, right? So my point would be a, a protest vote, an actual protest vote, is very powerful, potentially, if enough of them, you know, most of us are fed up. If we were to actually allow ourselves to be counted as something different than apathetic, that we would be a force to be reckoned with. Yeah. But I'm also disappointed that when somebody like yourself um, stands up and, you know, takes the risk of daring to, you know, run in the open for governor, what I hoped would happen, what I tried to get to happen uh, by trying to call attention to your candidacy yeah. on Twitter was I hoped that all of the people that we are in conversation with would stand up and say, hey, this is the moment, right? This is the moment for a real challenge to be made. And um, you know, there were a few who did, but I I must say I was disappointed not to see uh, the you know, I hate the term influencer. I think it's a terrible term. And the problem is influencers are not leaders and we need leaders, mm-hmm. but all of the people in the vast heterodox influencer group, I think could have made the
0: difference. And well, let me say something about the run because, um, the, you you were, were right to detect an opportunity, um, which is that we have an open primary system in California. So it's the top two vote getters. And it means anybody can vote for anybody. So Democrats can vote for Republicans, Republicans vote for Democrats, and anybody can vote for independent. I ran as an independent, which in California is called no party preference. Yep. So the opportunity here was to, and we had a weak Republican field. So the opportunity here was that everyone assumes the governor would come in first, and there's an opportunity to come in second. I came in third. It looks like I'll probably have around 4% of the vote, and my uh, and the person that, will, that came in second We'll have something like thirteen percent. There was a scenario to get to be in second, but we needed a lot more money, and we got in. Uh, we got in late. I was I- intending to back the former mayor of San Diego. He decided not to run because he didn't think he could win, and that wasn't. He didn't decide not to run until January, so I only got into the race in early March. So we had three months. So long story short we didn't have the money, we didn't have the time. I don't think we should be, I mean, I think one question is, and you know, if we had had more money, could we have come in second? I think so. If we'd come in second, could we have won in the general? I think there was a chop. Would have still been difficult, but we would have done better than the 40% that the the 38 to 40% of the Republicans always get in California. Um, So I just wanted to lay that out there because I think We don't want to overread what happened here. And then I think it's also more challenging at the federal level with the presidential election than it is in open primary state. I was disappointed. I'll tell you something. I I was disappointed because the whole time I'm campaigning, Andrew Yang is talking about the need for a third-party candidate, and he never endorsed me. Now, I didn't go asking for it either, so it's not like I'm not crying about it. But I thought it was a little weird. Like Here you have somebody who is actually running in an open primary and we didn't, and Andrew Yang's out there talking in the abstract. So for me, it was not, it was not it wasn't, I wasn't upset about it. It was more weird, like, why would you talk abstractly about supporting somebody independent rather than actually supporting somebody that was independent? Well, a number of things, I, there are four or five things in there that I think
1: yeah. need a response. One of them is, I think Trump did us one huge service which was that he demonstrated that the duopoly could be beaten even at the Mm -hmm. top level, Mm -hmm. right? And he did that under the red banner, but he basically um, commandeered the Republican party over the objection of the power brokers and demonstrated that they could not outfox him. Now, I think he was, you know, Mm -hmm. the very same character traits that allowed him to do that made him the wrong guy for the job, for sure. But nonetheless, The knowledge that it is possible Mm -hmm. is
0: very interesting.
1: And with respect to your point about Andrew Yang in particular, and I must say, I have not met Andrew in person. He and I have corresponded and I consider him a friend and I greatly appreciate what he's doing. Yeah. Um, But his failure to show up uh, for you, I think is emblematic of a larger issue, which is the kinds of people who break first, who enter this world and start trying to think outside the box about what well, you know could you come in second in a california open primary and then once you have the attention of the public because who is this person who came in second you you know you could at least change the conversation if not be elected to the office that's a pretty clever ploy right right i mean i don't mean to use the word ploy, no, ploy I mean, negative as a no, strategy no, no, no. yeah yeah sure it's, it's, it's tactic yeah, yeah. It's, it's tactic there's yeah, an opening yes. in california Yeah. Wouldn't it have been marvelous if this had worked? Yeah. Um, but you got to be a little bit of a lone wolf to think that way, mm-hmm. right? And so you have lone wolf disease. I have lone wolf disease. So does Andrew Yang, Justin Amash, Tulsi Gabbard. And so the problem is all of the people who see this opportunity before it's obvious mm-hmm. are also people who have a little
0: trouble confederating
2: mm-hmm.
1: and
0: <laughs> a little trouble. Well, I mean, we like IDW as the, uh, that's supposed to be the banner, but nobody liked IDW, so. <laughs> well,
1: look, I think IDW, you know, personally, I hope I don't get myself in trouble with my brother who coined the term. <laughs> but um, my sense is that IDW was a prototype and that effectively the mission becomes how do we make the 2.0 version and the 3.0 version until we get something that self-catalyzes at a level that it actually can mm-hmm. build power responsibly. Um, and you know, I thought it was a very responsible group, but it was a, you know, it was an abstraction. And in order to do what you were talking about, for example, or what I was talking about with Unity 2020, or what Andrew Yang is talking about with the forward party, mm-hmm. you have to be um, you know, I'll borrow from from the Christians, right? you have to be in the world but not of it you mm-hmm. have to be strategically minded enough to play the political game without allowing the political game to take you over yes and i very much i mean i don't know why i mean eric came out strongly for you
2: yes I thought both
1: that,
0: you and your brother that, did that was yeah. great yeah um,
1: but the question is there are a lot of people who have a lot of influence who i think weren't sure what to make of you and so it was just easier to say nothing yeah and i really wish that they had realized it is inexpensive to say i don't know this person there might be something about them that is off but they look good to me and it, they could hardly be worse than what we've got
0: oh sure or even doing a zoom, I mean, you get a zoom call with me that's super cheap
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: right well you know i mean i guess or listen to the six hours of joe rogan that we recorded i mean that was you know we did a lot of a lot of podcasts but yeah, I think you're right. Um, I was gonna say I think there's a bigger. I think one of the questions is: is there room for a third space? I don't want to say party necessarily because I think just setting aside that but even pre politically, our society. You know, I was telling you I was watching this uh, this uh, Netflix TV series called Borden about parliamentary system in Europe. Yeah, and what's so fascinating is that you know the. The parliamentary elections, and then they form a government with multiple parties in a coalition government. Sure. So you can be, um, you can get 5% of the vote and have a lot of sway over the, what a government does. And so take the Greens of sure. Europe. The Greens, the most famous thing, of course, is that they got... I mean, here in Germany, um, we can, and we can get into nuclear. I don't mean to make this about nuclear. But the Greens have exerted extraordinary influence in terms of energy policy over center-left Political coalitions by being a small minority. Yep. In the United States, um, there is some of that, right? You have AOC, you have the kind of you have minority uh, political minorities exerting some power within political coalition, but you're still sort of either Democrat or Republican. And so, one question is: is that just baked into the system, or is there a room for a third? And I thought about the, the promise of the IDW. Was that it was saying we're not going to be classified as liberal or conservative, as Republican or Democrat. So for me, that was my initial attraction to it. I saw people pushing back on a, on a set of uh, pushing back mostly, let's be, to be fair, on the radical left, but also not aligning with Trump and Trumpism. And Barry Weiss's article in the New York Times Magazine is, I is, uh, think you were in. Yep. Um, you know, sort of you, Joe Rogan, Claire Lehman. Um, you know, but it also had people like Ben Shapiro, who's clearly a Republican, clearly a conservative. So for me, that was always exciting though, because it was like, there was a space that was being formed. Now it seems like there's been some conflicts within that space. There's been some, I mean, I know that, you know, there were some conflicts around Trump. There were conflicts around COVID. Trump
1: strained it and
0: COVID. Trump and COVID were probably the biggest two issues. Um, Maybe we'll have disagreements about nuclear. We can certainly get into them. I don't want to hesitate to do that. But but to say, for me, the initial excitement of it was that there is this disruptive third path, and it seems like I want to continue to try to hold that. But it seems like a set of other folks in there are like they're like we're out and we don't want to do it. Well, look, I think we have
1: to not overinterpret the effect of trump and then covid on something like the idw you know painting with a broad brush id was the right uh, idw was the right idea Mm -hmm. and we can see that you know it's one thing people are sometimes freaked out if you start at idw because what is this you know the 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 name throws people immediately but the hidden tribes report says that there is a vast group in the middle And we're running the hidden tribe. The hidden tribes is it's a it's a report that came out of a a study group in which they surveyed political attitudes of Americans, and what they found is what they call um, the exhausted middle, which Mm -hmm. is a substantial majority of us agree on most things. Even the things that we are famously unable to agree on, we basically agree Mm -hmm. on. We basically agree on abortion. You know, very few people want to ban it you know, close to conception and very few people want to tolerate it close to birth, which means we have to draw a line and it's not going to be a comfortable one. But most Americans are right in the, you know, line drawing mindset. And the point is issue after issue, we are this way. Mm -hmm. Now that stands in stark contrast to what happens at the ballot box, which Mm -hmm. has increasingly become about teams, right? Where we, you know, we are on a razor thin margin between blue and red and we can't we don't barely see the other side as human and the point is that is actually a distraction from the real process of uh, of governing and I would argue by some kind of design whether that design is intentional and conspiratorial or whether it's evolutionary and emergent something has kept us divided so that our true power is never manifest in government and I and I would argue that um, what effectively happened was during the clinton administration the democratic party shifted strategies and what it did was it went from being a representative of working people um and you know was it a clean representative no the unions were dirty and there was all kinds of uh Mm -hmm. corrupt politics going on but basically the, the democratic party represented working people and then and the the republican party represented corporate Uh, interests. And the Clinton administration caused the Democratic Party to become a direct competitor to the Republican Party. And their real constituents became a different subset of the corporations. And the American public was shut out. And we've been playing political theater ever since, right? The point is, there is no party that represents the American people. Were there one, it would be wildly popular. And that raises the question about why nobody ever builds one. Mm -hmm. Right. And um, the, you know, you say, is there room for a third party? And we've got parliamentary systems. And is there something about the structure of our first past the post voting that makes it impossible to have a third? Well, I do think that a third is unstable, but a second would be good because really what we have are two, you know, slightly different flavors of the very same corrupt system and no representative of the people. And so, you know, the the politicos effectively deal with the electorate as an annoyance. Right. They have to answer to us every so often enough to win power that they then peddle to their actual constituents. Um, And, you know, who who loses? We do. Mm -hmm. So, yes, IDW is the way to talk about it. It doesn't have to be IDW. It could be any group of people that's willing to put aside large differences in order just to have an honest conversation. and yes, there's room for something political, but one has to. You,
0: you're not going to go through the front door.
2: Right? Mm-hmm.
0: That's, the, that's the thing we all keep learning. And what does what what is, what is not going through the front door look like? Well, well, like the open primary, you mean? Open primary is a great example. Right? Some alternative. Well, I would say
1: at the point that they instituted an open primary, they created a shift in a strategic opportunity that maybe they hadn't noticed. Mm-hmm. You noticed it, right? It's like, oh. I've got to come in second. And then we have a head to head race between, you know, the name brand candidate and the Maverick. And that's at least interesting, right? Right. So yeah, you noticed a strategic opportunity. I did something related with Unity 2020, which was there's a reason that you can't win the presidency from a third party position at the moment. Mm -hmm. And that's because anytime you try, no matter who the major party candidates are you are accused of endangering the republic by uh, spoiling the election and throwing it to the greater evil so unity 2020 was a very carefully architected plan to avoid that critique right a center left candidate and a center right candidate who would agree we would draft these two people based on their their uh capacity right their integrity um, and their courage, and they would agree to govern as a team. And only when they couldn't reach agreement, only when they couldn't come to consensus would the person in the president's role, um, make the call. And then after four years, they would run in the reverse positions. So the point is everything about that plan was about neutralizing the asymmetry between right and left and, you know, given a fair shot, most people would like some courageous, capable patriots in the White House talking about every issue, figuring out what's in the American public's interest and taking their best shot, right? That's got to be better than what we have, right? Yeah. So, so anyway, that is also a strategic loophole, right? Mm-hmm. In other words, we have a system in which we elect a president and a vice president, but nothing says that you can't, between those two, have an informal agreement to do something else. Now, Andrew Andrew
0: Yang got pretty far
1: to the front door, right? Well, no. You didn't think he got very far?
0: I thought he, I mean, he
1: noticed a loophole too, or maybe um, something did, which was that effectively you could mount a campaign on social media and Goliath didn't understand social media well enough to stop it. But what happened to Andrew Yang is that he got stopped by the major media. Right? Right? You remember the nonsense where they put up, in, you know, when they were, like, showing the chart of how well the different candidates in the Democratic field were doing. And in Andrew Yang's place, they put up some randomly chosen Asian man.
0: Oh, I yeah. don't remember that.
1: And, you know, during the debates, they cut off his mic. I mean, it was low-level mm-hmm. power games mm-hmm. that, that stopped him. Mm. But, uh, you know, okay. And then, you know, Justin Amash... He's really interesting when you talk to him about what life actually looked like inside the u.s house of representatives and how different it is and how virtually impossible it is for your representative to make anything occur in that body because of the way power has been reapportioned through right. changes so i don't know it sort of seems like we've got we've got a puzzle that's more a question of can you strategically figure out what the enemy hasn't anticipated and and find a way to actually, you know, squeeze through the cracks. Then hey, people are sick of this. Let's let's run and win, right? Right. That should work, but it doesn't.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it seems like you know the 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 challenge this translate's it's a translation problem from cultural formation that like we call an IDW to political viability. And what was so striking for me as somebody that was outside of politics was how powerful identity is. So there's just a lot of people, even though like I have been on Fox News, Joe Rogan, you know, I got on Bill Maher at the end. Um, My books have sold to Republicans. Republicans go to the ballot box and I go, who's the Republican guy? You know, there's just still, and partly that's because we did not reach enough people but i was more famous than the republican i had more twitter you know more social media followers more publicity than the republican but because he was the republican guy the voters I, sided with the republican so there's an identity problem here too that i was struck by similarly in the recall election a fairly no-name democrat but the most high-profile democrat who ran had more votes than the most qualified Republican, who's the former mayor of San Diego. So identity is so powerful. And these party names, of course, these party identities are super old. So I'm struck by how much of the problem is in the political structures themselves and how much of it is just in the consciousness of the voters, which is very, very low. I mean, people think about the products they buy more than they think about the political parties and the candidates.
2: Yeah
1: um well i agree although there's another uh loophole that is to me uh glaring which i thought it did not you know i watched at a distance the struggle that you were facing in this election and you know i I hesitate to say this into a camera because i don't necessarily want goliath to understand it but here's the thing goliath is kind of a numbskull I don't think he's going to get it, even if I say. Goliath it. is blind, right? That's the whole point. Or he's, he's very nearsighted. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, my riff on this is that Goliath, modern... So there was a Goliath, a real guy who probably sure. had a pituitary tumor. Right. And that's why he was a giant. Um, he wasn't defeated by David. He was defeated by a guy named Elhanan. But anyway, it's probably a true story. And the point is these pituitary tumor giants are feeble. They're powerful, but they're feeble. Right. And Goliath, our Goliath is a composite. It's, you know, they're, you know, people who meet inside the DNC and presumably the RNC and conspire, right? But there's also this emergent property that's very powerful. But the thing about emergent properties, like all products of evolution, they're really powerful against things that assembled them. They're moronic when it comes to fighting things they've never seen before. Right. So being novel and coming at them from a direction they don't expect is, is key. Yes. But Anyway, the, the glaring opportunity that I see that I don't think um, most of us yet get is this was an election in California. Now it happens that I'm a Californian by birth, but I don't live in California, right? Why was I voicing an opinion about a California election? And the answer is, well, A, California belongs to me too. Yeah, right. I may move back here. And even if I never do, I'm an American and California is an important part of America. And I have an interest in what happens here. All right. I do not want to see it collapse. I also have, I mean, almost all of my family lives in California. So I have an interest here that way. But even if I didn't, let's say I was Jordan Peterson, right. And I'm in Canada. I still don't want California to fail. It's part of the West. Right. Right. And so, anyway, my point would be, I think that in order to do what you were doing, less focus on, you know, the focus on what to do with California if you win the seat. Yeah, that's important. Yeah, But who needs to recognize you as an important player in that? They don't have to be Californians.
0: Yes, I agree. No, we wanted, and I'm glad you raised it. That That was the way I felt too, is that this is important for the country. California is super important for the drive. I mean, so many things start in California and then they move east. So I totally agree with that. Um, Let me ask it this way. What would have done that? What more would have done that? Just slightly
1: more vision on
0: the part of our friends, frankly.
1: Yeah, just more endorsements and stuff, yeah. I guess the point is, look, it's very, very inexpensive to say, you know, to say what I said or what what Eric said. Oh, yeah. the point was, do I know this guy backwards and forwards? I don't, but I can see what's in the office, and I can see that this guy is way clearer headed. And um, why wouldn't, you know, given that we've got a machine politician yeah. doing what the machine wants, and that it's obviously a disaster, which you can, you don't have to drive very many blocks to see it. It's yeah. that visible, right? Why would do we take a gamble on something different? Right. What are the chances we could actually do worse?
0: Yeah, I think they're actually pretty low. So, you know, but who in particular were you surprised that you didn't see
1: speak out? It wasn't even that. What I was yeah. hoping would happen is that there would be a active conversation amongst those people, mm-hmm. right? And that basically, I mean, look, I'm I'm coming from having watched. Um, When Heather and I released our book last September, we were probably as a result of our heterodox stance on COVID and the response to it, completely frozen out by mainstream media. Mm -hmm. Um,
0: And censored too, right?
1: Utterly censored and slandered. I mean, we are slandered to this day on our Wikipedia pages of all things. Um, (laughs) But the point is, the book still got into the top five new york times bestsellers across all categories right how did that happen mm-hmm. it happened because a whole network of people who aren't supposed to matter actually matter more right in the mainstream media right right and so if that wide group of people you know from russell yeah. brand and england to jordan peterson you know if that yeah. extended network of people had said we're all concerned about California we're all intrigued that there's somebody running who isn't one of the mainstream offerings I mean you know you're on the Dark Horse podcast you're a true dark horse right yeah that's what you are and um, if there had been a recognition hey it is a moment for a dark horse candidate to to show up and you know frankly I wouldn't want to be governor of California They've set you up. That's a bad. That's a bad set of responsibilities to be handed at this moment, because they've already done a good job of uh, wrecking the system. So, you know, not only do you have to steward it well, but you have to steward it well enough to get it out of a tailspin. Right? It, yeah, it would be a tough job. For right. Sure. But nonetheless, here's you know, I'm sitting on a couch with a guy who actually looked at that and didn't say, "Yeah, <laughs> not for me." You said,
0: "Okay, yeah, well, I'll no, do it." Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think um, it's interesting. I think that the people that did not do more to support my candidacy, I think were mostly on the political right. And they tended to be people who had given up on California, including people that had moved. And I think had, I I would say people that have either given up on on um, on California, given up, and then to some extent given up on politics, and are skeptical that much can be achieved in politics. Whereas the people that were supportive, they weren't all on the left, but I associate you and your brother, even though your COVID position, I, I think of you as more center left. Now maybe that's oh, not I, a label you would use. I,
1: I describe myself as a reluctant radical. And what that yeah. means is I believe only radical change will save us. Radical change is frightening, but I don't think we have a choice. So okay, I, I'm, I'm not center left. I'm, okay,
0: your brother, is more center left. He's he closer to the center. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think people, now there are other people like Ayan, Hershey Ali, Neil Ferguson, who are probably conservative. Um, uh, Peter Boghossian, our mutual friend in Portland, I think he would define himself as a liberal. He does. And would probably be like a social democrat in Europe or something. Yeah. Um, So I and he was enthusiastic. Uh, Melissa Chen has become a friend. She's uh, I think she's she's at a conservative magazine, but is probably pretty center left if you really look at her policy agenda. Um, So you know, I mean, I think those were the folks. I think the folks that are fully Republican, that are skeptical of a third way, that are that that have renounced IDW or are skeptical of IDW, were the ones who did not show up to be supportive. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's, um, I mean, look, I think I'm mostly happy. There's a way in which I kind of think it's good that I didn't know how little support we would have gotten, which was good that we got good support, but I'm glad we didn't know how little we would have gotten in advance. Otherwise, I wouldn't have run. Right. And by running, we were able to force this issue. You know, the coverage has changed of homelessness. In particular, it's gone from being viewed pretty narrowly as a housing affordability issue to an untreated addiction and mental illness issue. And if anything, I think the coverage is still, it's much more balanced now, I would say, than before. We're now seeing in Seattle, they're shutting down the homeless encampments slash open drug scenes. I'm not sure where the Portland conversation is at, but it does seem like some of it's changing. I think you You did did change the conversation, and I think that that was
1: hugely important. Um, I think you substantially you. changed the conversation. That makes me feel happy. Yeah, no, I, I I feel it, and I also have one observation to make. You know, it's very hard to see outside of your own. Uh, I don't want to say bubble, but even just your own circumstance. Yes, something that I think was invisible to you, um, which I wish I had conveyed earlier, but it it took me a while to figure it out. Is that part of what happened to you was that nobody who wasn't in California had any idea what the actual mechanism of the race meant about timing right Mm -hmm. so the point was i don't think people understood that june 7th was the date on which they would have needed to show up to matter yeah right because
2: they thought they were looking at november right exactly yeah Yeah.
1: and so if this could you know yeah i'm dreaming of of a of a white paper that could be sent out that says look here's the candidate." here is why this is actually uh, potentially viable. Yep. Here's the date that matters, right? Here, you know, whatever the other parameters might be. And then, um, and then the question is, can you get people out of the, you know, we're, we are all so used to being burned by what we didn't know about the article we read, that we tweeted or whatever it is, everybody is so, on edge about making mm-hmm. errors that i think it's just far easier when you see you know i don't know what a michael schellenberger is and i don't really understand how it is that he's running for governor it's easiest just not to touch the issue Yep. right yeah
0: yeah that makes sense um well this is good i want to talk about so i want to come i think we can. we can come back to nuclear at the end i'd like to talk a little about covid let's um and censorship um, so I stayed out of COVID for the most part. I wrote, some early, I wrote an early piece that basically was pretty much echoing the mainstream view, which was that we needed to take some pretty significant actions. Yep. This was in March, April 2020. And then I decided to go write San Francisco, and I basically stopped working on it. for the campaign, I had a lot of people that were, and you may know that Steve Kirsch is on my board, My non-profit. Oh, yeah. So, Steve Kirscher is a longtime friend and supporter. He's been on my board of directors. I know he's a friend of yours now. Mm -hmm. Um, But I knew very little about it. I I stayed mostly out of it. I saw that you and Claire were fighting. I saw this thing going on. I was trying to be nice. (laughs) Claire was fighting. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So, you know, I'm interested in how you look back on the last couple of years and what you take from it. Um, I will say I have been censored on Facebook for climate information. Um, and then the only time I've ever been censored on Instagram was just a week ago for, for posting images of my tweets saying that mask mandates were pseudoscience. And what I tweeted out was from the New York Times. It was from David Leonhardt, his piece on mask mandates. So it's the only thing I've ever had censored um, catch me, tell me where, what, what, when you look back over the last two years and, and, and also just catch me with your views. Cause I know I'm sure you're, you know, I know your viewers know, but, but catch me on that. and Yeah. Looking back and how would you summarize it?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I, there are a couple different threads there. Yeah. One, personally, I don't think I had any choice about what I did. Mm-hmm. Sure, there are small things I could alter. There are a couple things I got wrong, which i I wish I hadn't. but uh-huh. I thought actually, in light of how much one could get wrong, that actually we got almost everything right. Okay, and that that's important. But I mean, basically, um when i when I came into the the public eye, I came into the public eye for being the person who faced with an accusation of racism, just said, no, no, that's right. not true. Right. I can establish that if you're willing to listen. And so the point is I got famous, as it were, for saying difficult, true things. Yes. That's what I always do.
0: Right. Right.
1: And the problem is sometimes it wins you friends. Mm-hmm. And then it will turn some of those people to enemies on the next topic. Right. And my feeling is, look you either signed up for somebody who will do that, in which case, you know, there's nothing that guards me against being wrong other than the fact that I try really hard not to be wrong because frankly, reversing course is painful and right. costly. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, if you're either signed up for somebody who will say the uncomfortable stuff, no matter how many people disagree with them mm-hmm. and no matter how forcefully, or you're not really on board with that. And so my feeling is, okay, I did what I always do. In this case, it had um, terrible effects in many regards. I mean, Heather and I lost more than half our family income in a single hour as YouTube wow. demonetized both our channels. They wow. remain demonetized. Wow. Um, for things that we were right about, mm. right? Um, so. But then you get a best selling book. Best-selling book, we don't know how well it would have done if we hadn't been actively accused of spreading misinformation, which has now been redefined um, by the federal government, by the Department of Homeland Security, yeah. as malinformation. Mm-hmm. Have you Have you gotten the memo? No. Oh, marvelous. <laughs> it's the marvelous. There are now three types of uh, informational terrorism. One of them is misinformation, that's when you're incorrect about something. The next one is disinformation. That's when you're incorrect and you know it. Intentionally. And yeah. malinformation is when you're correct in a way that causes distrust of the government. So that might be where you ended up running afoul of uh, Instagram or- Wow. Well, t- yeah, so, wow. Back, so
0: back me up in terms of, um, all right, what did you get right? What did you get wrong? And what is the jury still out about on? Okay. Well, there's a question about what the evidence says. There's a question
1: about what people have now acknowledged. And there are big gaps here. So I would say that there are um, several major threads to the conversation. The first one is um, where did the virus come from? Mm -hmm. Uh, I was very early on lab leak. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I won't go all the way back into the history, but it became obvious very quickly that while some of the evidence was ambiguous, all of the evidence that wasn't ambiguous pointed to the lab and not to the wet market or mm-hmm. to a cave. Okay. And you know, I said so, Okay. um, and I was pretty clear that the st- you know, I wasn't a hundred percent sure of anything, but, um,
0: so the three big issues, origin, there's origin masks and masks lockdowns and vaccines Are those? would you say those are the four big issues related no, to no i would
1: say the three biggest issues are origin early treatment and vaccine safety and effectiveness okay i would say there is a fourth that the public has yet to really understand is even an issue but it is which is uh, the evolution of viral variants Mm -hmm. where are they coming from why do they look the way they do what would we do if we wanted to shut them down right um so that's a fourth thread and then there's the lockdown and mask question masks are actually one thing i got wrong early on i thought i was one of the first people uh anywhere that i was aware of who was masking in fact at the point that covid became it became clear covid was going to transform the way we were interacting at least for the time being um we we had a our studio was downtown and my son and i would go late at night when we wouldn't interact with anybody um and we would we took all of the equipment to do our podcast out of this office space that we knew we were abandoning and we moved it into our house and we would go to the home depot and we would buy the stuff for our set and we built this thing and i got a reputation As the bandit of the hardware store because I was masking, Mm. right? Nobody else was masking it. This is all in Portland? Yeah. Nobody's masking
0: in Portland? Early on? No, no, no. I was masked way before they were. And is your view now that masks, are you, I mean, do like N95s? Are you thinking N95s don't work? Uh, I wouldn't say N95s don't work. I would say if properly worn
1: N95 masks... Have some effect, right? But the mask mandates
0: don't require an N95. Mask. Yeah, yeah, the Cloth yeah. masks don't seem to work at all. I was struck on social media how how much people mixed up masks and mask mandates. Right, that and they're that they're the same thing and they're not. Um, right. So okay, so that's easy. So then, so then, what about the vaccines? Well, hold on. Masks I got wrong. Okay. Um,
1: lockdowns I think I got right which was there was a place for lockdowns, but they needed to be more intense than they were, they needed to be short duration, and they needed to be paired with excellent quality testing, which frankly, we still don't have. Right. Which I don't know, I can't imagine why we don't have it. I think that's a problem money would solve, and the fact that we haven't dedicated enough money to have tests that are worth anything is conspicuous to me. But I would have had, let's say, a yes, painful, six week very intense lockdown Mm -hmm. and the reason for that is that that gives it enough time most of the transmission was at home so six weeks gives it enough time to burn through you know places where we are corralled together such that at the point you lift that six week mandate you have a small number of places where active covid still exists and if you had good testing you could figure out where they were and you could apply some very local solutions that we the rest of us could have gone back um, to life, given that we never had good tests. I would not favor
0: that plan. Mm-hmm. But were I in charge, I would have infested very sort of an Asian, East Asian approach: Korea, right. Hong Kong.
2: Well,
1: yes and no. You know, good uh, good tests would be key, and then a epidemiologically sensible lockdown in which the virus was given a chance to be not contagious in any given group mm-hmm. so that, you know, you would have hotspots, but you could find them and the rest of us wouldn't be infecting each other. So I think I had that right, but we don't know. Okay. Because we didn't do that. Okay. Um, Lab origin, I think I clearly had right and I think almost everybody now gets it.
0: So then the other two were early treatment and vaccines. Early treatment and vaccines. And you
1: asked for vaccines first. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I initially was excited about the vaccines, I initially assumed that I would be vaccinated. I became, and Heather and I really, became immediately alarmed at the point that the vaccines were announced because of what was said about them, right? Heather and I, because we're biologists, looked at what we were being told about these vaccines. And on the one hand, what a marvelous, fascinating way to vaccinate. Right This is a really radically different way of inducing an immune response, and you know, in our book, which was finished, we literally emerged from writing the last uh, or the first uh, draft of the book that we then submitted to the publisher. We emerged we were in the uh, Ecuador and Amazon figuring uh, finalizing the book. We emerged back to where our phones connected to the world and heard about uh, the novel coronavirus um and so anyway the book was written before covid it has an addendum that includes covid but the book is not about covid um and in the book we say vaccination is one of three great triumphs of medical technology right the other two being surgery and antibiotics Um, so we're big fans of vaccines and Mm -hmm. these vaccines are really fascinating and we we were compelled that it was a pretty interesting idea But we were absolutely alarmed at being told that they were safe because they couldn't possibly be, Mm -hmm. right? We didn't know that they did harm, but the point is safe means you know it doesn't do harm. Mm -hmm. And the gamble involved in this radical intervention in the immune system uh, was so great that I thought, well, you're you're telling us you know that these aren't going to cause autoimmune disorders or tumors or neurological disruptions right it was just the number of things that these could induce Mm -hmm. that you would have to you would need years following them to know for sure that they didn't do it and we were told oh no they're where they're safe and we know it we accelerated the process of testing these are safe and it's like whoa i know you just lied to me right and so the fact that they lied to us and said they were safe when they couldn't possibly know that caused us to think we want you know we weren't initially eligible Um, because we're healthy and uh, not that old. And so we were like, okay, we'll wait as long as we can and we'll give time for an adverse event signal to show up because that's the safer thing to do. And the longer we waited, the more frightening that picture became, right? So what is the state of this discussion? Well, I don't think most of the public has any idea yet how much harm has been done Right, I don't think the public has caught on to the fact that we either have no information on how dangerous they are because the one system we have for collecting that information is now dismissed, um, or we do know how dangerous they are, and it's incredibly dangerous. But we have an adverse event signal that is greater than all of the other vaccines combined. Mm. You know, over the course of thirty years. So the signal, we built a system to detect an adverse event signal that. Uh, that system is firing off you know alarms at an unprecedented level and we're ignoring it now the public does know about myocarditis and it knows about blood clots and so it knows that there's some sort of an issue but it hasn't yet understood how deep the problem is Um, hopefully we will stop gaslighting the injured know and find out how many there are Mm -hmm. find out how sick they are and find out whether we can treat them Um, but for the moment we're still pretending that it's a tiny tiny number of people which uh, seems very unlikely Mm -hmm. and then there's the toughest of all of these which is early treatment Um, so we were effectively told that there was um, you know you could either face COVID or you could be vaccinated well, that's only because we ignored
0: the medicines
1: that really do work.
0: Right. And what, what I mean, I, 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 Steve Kirsch was advocating of this, and of course I saw the 60 Minutes that covered one of these trials, which was right here in Berkeley, by the way, at the local um, horse uh, arena, where the workers, you remember this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The yeah. Uh, the workers got these two different early treatments, so... For fluvoximate. Yeah. Yeah. So what, like... What's the deal there?
1: Well, the deal is unfortunately, um, of a nature that, you know, there are two mutually exclusive ways of viewing it. Either those of us who believe early treatment works are all woefully misinformed and incapable of seeing that we've made an error or something has endeavored, has spent mightily to prevent information on early treatments that work from making it to your doctor, your pharmacist, you know, the mainstream media, I don't think this is ambiguous at all. Um, The evidence is quite strong, but the sophistication of the campaign that has been marshaled to prevent that information from being understood is Stunning.
0: But it was on, I mean, is that fluvoxamine? Fluvoxamine. Fluvoxamine was, was on 60 Minutes, and it was incredibly compelling. So what happened with that particular? That's a great question. Yeah. Because here, okay, so we've got fluvoxamine, which is
1: a, um, a usually used for depression. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got a strong signal that it is very effective against COVID. Um, it's not part of the standard of care. And why is that? Because there's no money to be made is the obvious answer. Because it's a generic
0: at this point. Is that why? Yeah. Is it the story? Is the story? I've read the story where sort of one of the reasons they that they thought that these drugs would were that fluvoxamine or other psychiatric drugs would work was because psychiatric patients were not getting COVID. Is that true? Is that a, is that a sort of urban myth?
1: Um, I don't know. Steve would be the guy yeah. to, to ask about that. Um, I have not been particularly excited about fluvoxamine because I think by and large, you know, these psychological medications are a faustian bargain and we have better drugs we have Mm -hmm. drugs that work better than that what are those um here's where things get very ugly yeah there are two primary and then there are a bunch of other things that seem to
0: contribute okay
1: the two are ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine okay now hydroxychloroquine is one i got wrong i did not spot that early i thought I, i bought the story Right at the point that Trump talked about hydroxychloroquine and then, you know, the uh, scientific chorus erupted and said, it doesn't work. We thought it was promising, but it doesn't work. I assumed that that made sense. It turns out it doesn't. It's a very important anti-COVID drug with very low toxicity. And the tests that were done actually specifically gave people a toxic dose in order to to make the the compound unthinkable. Um, but it does, it does, there's very strong evidence that hydroxychloroquine is very effective against COVID. Um, there's equally strong evidence that ivermectin works. Ivermectin has two utilities in this crisis. One of them is that it is extremely effective at treating people who have COVID now. The earlier you give it, the better. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways that the uh, evidence for its utility has been obscured is by making what are called underpowered trials that do things like treat people with too little or treat them too late in the course of the disease for it to be effective. Um, but if you treat people early with a sufficient dose, ivermectin turns out to be very effective at keeping people from getting severely ill. Um, and it's extremely low toxicity. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's effectively no reason not to give it. And it has been used effectively in many parts of the world. Um, to control the the pandemic now the really interesting thing about it is because it's so safe as a drug and it really is among the safest drugs that we have um it can be given without uh, a positive covid test in other words if you think you have covid we can just give it to you Mm -hmm. we're not putting you at significant risk what's more because it has prophylactic effectiveness we can give it to the people you live with and keep them from getting sick So I did get one thing wrong with ivermectin, which was I put too much weight on a study that came out of Argentina, which said uh, the study was uh, over a thousand people and it appeared to be a hundred percent effective. And I thought, well, that's pretty powerful evidence. There was then some concern about the quality of the data. I didn't want to get it wrong. So I actually contacted the primary investigator I said can I see the data set he did not provide the data set and I became further alarmed that there was something about this study that um, was unreliable Mm. I believe we now know what happened which was that uh, this uh, researcher Hector Carvalho ran the study but he ran it as a tally he didn't keep the data in the way that a proper scientific experiment Mm. would. what he basically did was counted case numbers of Uh, cases of covid and it's sloppy Mm -hmm. so when i discovered that that was the case i went to my audience and i said look i have said that this study suggests that this is nearly 100 percent effective as a prophylactic i would now rate the quality of this study you know i would give it zero evidentiary weight and that changes the overall picture for ivermectin's value a bit but Mm -hmm. not much Mm -hmm. so i got that wrong and i got hydroxychloroquine wrong and i got masks wrong um, but other than that, I think I got just about everything right.
0: And so, what's the? Um, and so, your what would your and what do your critics accuse you of? Um, my critics, and what is your response to your critics? My response to my critics is that
1: they don't actually know what they're talking about.
0: But what is their criticism? Or what is their criticism of you? And then, what's the the criticism? Uh,
1: the one that is most intense at this point is. You got ivermectin wrong, we now know it doesn't work, and you, uh, for reasons of pride or because you made money or something like this, Won't uh, won't admit it. Now frankly, even at this late date, if I thought ivermectin didn't work, the best thing I could do for my family, for my future, would be to say, hey, I got this one wrong, here's how it happened, but it doesn't work. It's just not the case. It does work. And the fact that people have been um, kept from having access to this drug and then been left with a choice. Do you want to be vaccinated or not? When the real choice is of the available treatments and preventatives, which is the best uh, from the point of view of the cost benefit analysis, right? Likely For almost everybody, and maybe even for everybody, these vaccines were far too radical in their mechanism of action to be contemplated. And for most people, they could be kept safe with these alternatives. The problem is, there wasn't any money to be made. And so, does the
0: the disagreement about the evidence turn on this issue of the under of not prescribing ivermectin soon enough or at high enough dosages well have you heard of the together trial
1: no okay you you probably did run across it at the point that it finally emerged so the together trial was a complex trial that tested many different drugs including fluvoxamine this is where the fluvoxamine evidence comes from or at least the primary evidence Um, anyway tested many drugs against placebo And supposedly, we knew eight months ago now that the result for ivermectin did not, was not um, statistically, they used a different kind of statistics, but it was not statistically significant in favor of ivermectin, which is not the same thing as saying ivermectin doesn't work, Mm -hmm. but it is uh, a negative result, right? We didn't see the study for seven months. We saw the headline, we saw, you know, slides from a PowerPoint presentation that said, no, ivermectin is not effective at keeping people uh, safe and keeping them from getting very sick. Seven months later, the um, the actual paper is published and we're able to finally scrutinize what was done. And it's insane, right? I mean, there are things built into this trial that still have not been explained that absolutely sabotage it, right? Mm-hmm. Like There's a weight cutoff for the dosing. So the dosage that the paper says that they give is a viable dose, but they cut it off and they don't keep increasing it the heavier you are. Mm. And so the point is what this does is it takes people who are the most vulnerable to COVID and underdoses them, Mm. right? So anyway, the point is, the public got the headline seven months before they got the paper, They read the title of the paper. They read the abstract. But until you get to the methods section and start asking questions about, well, what exactly was done in this study and what effect would that have on a drug that works? It dramatically underpowered the trial. What's more, the evidence that the TOGETHER trial produced does suggest that ivermectin is effective. In fact, the PI, who's the first author on this paper, says that he believes if they had added more patients to the trial, they would have shown a positive effect for ivermectin, right? He says it's a matter of the size of the study, not the effectiveness of the drug. Hmm. He said that to Steve Kirsch in an email, Hmm. okay? So this is not evidence that people people think it is of the drug's ineffectiveness. It's evidence of what happens if you underpower a trial with an effective drug is you still get an effect. what's more interesting is that this isn't the only time we've seen this issue where the person that supposedly generated the evidence that says that the drug isn't effective privately says something very different Mm -hmm. right the other time we saw this was the meta-analysis done by andrew hill so there were two major meta-analyses on ivermectin there was one from the bird group headed by Tess Laurie in britain said ivermectin is extremely effective at preventing people from getting seriously ill, going into the hospital, and dying. Um, And then the other meta-analysis was Andrew Hill's that said it wasn't effective. Tess Laurie had a Zoom call that she recorded with Andrew Hill, in which he acknowledges that ivermectin works, and that he thought he was pressured, he says he was pressured by Hmm. Unitaid to change the conclusion of his meta-analysis, and he hoped that it would be six weeks before he had more data so that he could change the conclusion back to saying that didn't works. So mm. it's the same pattern again and again. Every time you look deeply into these supposedly conclusive studies that suggest it doesn't work, you discover there's some sort of shenanigans going on where the PI believes something different than what's in the paper, and the evidence in the paper actually does suggest that there's an effect. So how many of these do we need to see before we just realize somebody doesn't want the evidence to conclude that Ivermectin works.
0: And do you think that this is motivated by a concern that if people were using Ivermectin then they wouldn't get vaccinated? I'm a little
1: hesitant. I I think it's clear what's going on. I think what's going on is so ghastly that for me to say it raises issues of credibility. Oh, come on, say it. (laughs) I I, I will, I will, but you realize those people, when they hear me say it, they'll think, oh, geez.
0: Well, you can edit it out if you don't nope, want, right? I won't or... edit it out. Okay.
1: <laughs> but I do think uh, pharma is not in the business that you and I think they're in, right? Pharma is in the business of selling compounds for which it has intellectual property rights that it can plausibly argue are useful for conditions that people want treated right it is not in the business of making people healthier or safer and unfortunately there were several drugs that were already out of patent highly effective and very safe that would have taken what turned out to be a many hundred billion dollar new market and killed it
2: yeah
0: yeah I mean it's 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 not a conspiracy in the sense that it's there's a profit motivation you're describing which is that they wanted to sell a lot of vaccines and they saw cheaper alternatives well the problem is if i'm right
1: then it implies a an indifference to human suffering and death that is uh pretty hard to fathom
0: I guess unless, I mean, I guess the to be devil's advocate, I guess you could sort of say, well, I mean, when I look at this stuff, like, for example, um, the school lockdowns, you know, um, were the teachers union in California, which, so we had a lockdown, you know, from 2020, 2021, Europe was sending back the kids to school. Are the teachers in California, were they indifferent to the impact that shutting down the schools would have on kids? No, I mean, I think they cared. They were just over... They were just more obsessed with their own health and safety than they were... And they make up reasons about how the kids would be educated over Zoom and it would be just just the same. People find all sorts of ways to justify things that they want. they do.
1: They do. Unfortunately, if you're in the business of rapidly generating a radically novel vaccine because you believe that a pathogen is so dangerous that it requires extraordinary investment to shut it down. And in the same breath, you are um, intervening uh, in people's access to a common medication Mm -hmm. um, that many have built successful medical protocols around treating their own patients. It's hard for me to imagine, um, the rationalization that would actually involve those who did it, not understanding that they were condemning, uh, likely millions to death. Mm-hmm.
0: What, um, help me, help me understand where do you sit in a relationship? So there's a bunch of COVID dissidents. There's uh, Vinay Prasad, Oops, yeah. UC San Francisco. There's um, uh, Carity. What's his first name? Uh, you, uh, you mean uh, Aaron? Yeah, Aaron, Aaron Cariotti. Aaron Cariotti. There's Jay Bhattacharya. Yep. Yeah. Um, and who else am I missing? These are some of the big. Robert Malone. Robert Malone. Garrett VandenBosch. How do you like... Ryan like, Cole. Yeah, like what is the state of play among the dissidents? I mean, Vinay strikes me as fairly mainstream, um, but he's also harshly critical of the public health establishment. How do, you, how do you kind of... how do you Where do you sit in relationship to these other guys? Um, I'm very troubled by Vinay as much
1: as uh, I want him to to be a good guy on the right side of history. The way he divides this puzzle makes no sense to me. Which is how? Um, He sees certain issues very clearly. And then other issues he...
0: What do you disagree with him on?
1: Um, The wisdom of vaccinating anyone. Right. The utility of ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. So uh, he doesn't believe
0: it. he doesn't support ivermectin or.
1: No. And he has. So I I see him on both sides of this issue and the places that he's right. I want to cheer him on and the places where he's wrong. I just think how can somebody who sees part of this picture so clearly miss so much Mm -hmm. and I'll tell you, I mean, you know, maybe I'm just around the bend, but my sense is that there is a, what I call the middle ground scramble. The middle ground scramble is on. And the point is, if you imagine that something endeavored to prevent the best treatments from reaching the public in order for it to sell reckless and expensive treatments and in fact to mandate them, well... That thing needs to be scolded, and all of the people who fell for it need a way out. And so, the last thing any of these people want is for the dissidents to have been right. Mm-hmm. Right? If the for dissidents sure. were right, then the reckoning that is coming is yeah, a thing to be feared. Right. So, what they want is somebody nicely positioned in the middle somebody who will scold those who did wrong, but, you know, slap on the wrist level, and will not validate the dissident perspective, so we can still dismiss those those dangerous people who spread misinformation, right? And unfortunately, what I see is Vinay exploring this space, and I don't know that he knows what he's doing, but I think the point is there is a hunger for somebody who was not part of the, bullshit cdc narrative somebody who saw through it Mm -hmm. to say oh but those COVID dissidents they were wrong as can be and the you know whoever figures out the dimension of that niche is going to be very um powerful and very well rewarded because it lets the people the perpetrators off pretty much scot-free you know the ill-gotten gains will remain in their bank accounts and um you know the service of doing away with us dissidents um will be uh you know part of the bargain Mm -hmm. so anyway i'm not i'm not very pleased with that middle ground scramble thing i see it as uh, its own pathology but um you know i think the community of dissidents contains some really fine doctors and some very good scientists and we also you know, have discovered who has the courage to say what they see and who doesn't. Mm-hmm. Should we move on to the topic that part of me wants to avoid because uh, I'm I'm concerned about disrupting the 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 bonami the bonami bon <laughs> as it were. Well,
0: but this is if there's conflict and disagreement that will make it the most interesting part of the podcast.
1: No, I think it'll be good. And actually, here's the I'm going to confess um, my level of insanity um, yeah. before we even embark on this. This is. A
0: signature issue for you going back how far? Uh, I changed my mind on nuclear between 2007 and 2010. 2007
1: and 2010. So we're talking about more than a decade of commitment to the idea that that nuclear is an important part of the solution to our energy problem. Yes. Um, There's a part of me that actually entertains the possibility that I've seen something in nuclear that when you hear it and think about it's gonna cause you to change your position again. Okay. Um, Now I know rationally that can't be right because you probably know more about nuclear than I do, although I've uh, spent a good deal of time thinking about it. But nonetheless, uh, let's find out where this goes. Okay.
0: You wanna lay out the case for nuclear? Sure. Um, So let's see. Let's start with the fact that nuclear energy emerges from the lab. So we learn that we can split the atom at the lab level. And that is important because I think that a lot of people think that the ability to split the atom begins with the bomb program, but the bomb program begins after we realize we can split the the atom at the lab level. I think it's also important because I think there's still some sense among some people that we could make nuclear go away but if it is when you understand that comes out of physics, out of at the lab level, then there's no way to get rid of nuclear, the knowledge of nuclear fission, of splitting the atoms. Um, the first application of nuclear energy is to make a weapon. We make two bombs. We drop them on Japan. So the first application is to use the weapon to end a war. And afterwards, it's a, it's a shocking event. So it's a shocking event to. And by the way, I'm working on a new book on nuclear, uh, specifically on nuclear. It's a shocking event because of the power of the just the and and it's, and, it's, and I should say too that we had been th- people have been thinking about this power for since really the end of the 19th century. It, but really, with with Marie Curie and Pierre Curie in the early very early 1900s with the discovery of radium there's a sense in which there's atomic energy. And once you release it, it'll be enormous. So there's huge, so it's a shocking event. It's before the bomb is used, it is understood by a small group of people as having significant implications for the relationship between nations. And that people understood that it would mean that small nations would be able to defend themselves from invasion from large nations. And so this is known as the nuclear revolution in military. So it changes this old calculation, which is that large states can swallow up small states or can invade easily and take over small states. So suddenly we realize that small states can defend themselves. And it also then quickly gets to appreciating a paradox, which is that there's no way to to properly win a nuclear war. And that it's two scorpions under glass in Robert Oppenheimer's famous uh, picture, and that the only and that um, that one nation that would use nuclear weapons against another nuclear armed nation would be committing suicide. So that I think creates a paradox, which is that something so dangerous could create a form of safety in the form of deterrence. And this is a very confusing point. In fact, my wife uh, said to me the other day, "She goes, because when, when Putin was when there was a stuff around Ukraine and Putin was sort of saying, after, reminding everybody that we have nuclear that he has nuclear weapons that any that the U.S. getting too close to him could result in nuclear war." My wife said, "But you don't think that that's possible?" And I said, "Well, sure, it's possible." And she said, "But you you don't think it would happen?" And I said, "Well, this is the paradox: is that if you if you stop fearing nuclear weapons, then they don't work anymore." Mm-hmm. And so the reason that nuclear weapons work to keep the peace is because there is a possibility that they could be used. So I don't want to get too far down the track. But so one so one thing about nuclear weapons, though, is that they genuinely pose something close to an apocalyptic threat, if not apocalyptic. There's a debate about whether nuclear winter is probable or not, but we know that. Full-scale nuclear war between the United States and the Soviet Union, which are two countries with significant weapons, are one of the only ways that we can imagine for civilizations to destroy themselves so quickly. So I do think that nuclear weapons um, are uh, do pose a significant threat to civilization. And I also think that they have spread peace between nations and that that's occurred between the United States and the Soviet Union, Soviet Union and China. And now we see it between India and Pakistan, and so I think. And so that's first observation. Second observation is just the time around nations acquiring nuclear weapons is the most dangerous moments. And so I get nervous. It's when North Korea gets the bomb that everybody gets nervous. But then some years pass and things stabilize. Just to cut to the chase of my book, in terms of weapons, I think that it's time to for the for Western the Western Alliance to have three nuclear umbrellas rather than one. I think it's time for Japan and South Korea to have their own nuclear arsenal and defend themselves and potentially Australia from an increasingly aggressive China before China takes too many small islands. And that is time for Western Europe to defend itself. And that means Britain, uh, France and Germany. in terms of the energy, so hold on, let, yeah, let's pause there because yeah, you've, yeah. you've said a lot, and I
2: want to sure. say a
1: lot of what you've said, I don't disagree with. Okay, um, I do think, you know, I would I would phrase the paradox this way: if we have mm-hmm. nuclear weapons, they will be used in earnest, and it could be um, existential.
0: The used, fact, how do you mean? By what do you mean by used? Uh, do you mean detonated? I mean they will be used aggressively. Do you mean used as deterrence or used as detonated? No, no, no. no. The, I think the
1: paradox is this. The deterrence works. Yes. It makes for a more peaceful, year to year, things yes. are more peaceful because of the threat of nuclear war. Correct. But if you have that as a permanent mechanism, eventually the um, the dice will be rolled in an unfortunate way and they will be used in earnest. And That's so, not what
0: I... And I don't agree with that last part. It's no, no. I,
1: I'm, I'm adding um, that part. Okay. And I think it's frankly just statistically the case, which is... What, you know, as you point out, if there's really no threat of them ever being used, then they're not an effective deterrent. So right. the fact of them being an effective deterrent says that there is a danger that they will be used. And then the question is, whatever the magnitude of that danger is, spread it out over
0: enough time and it says, oh, they're going to be used. Uh, I'm not with you on that last part. I know. Okay. I know. But I'm yeah, just saying. I was with you all the way up until that very last sentence. So, okay. so and yeah. this
1: is a mirror of where we're going to end up with nuclear energy, interestingly. Uh, I didn't see this coming, but I, I and I now do. So my point is actually, I think it's just a mathematical question. We agree that they work as deterrents, and that says that we can't afford to use them for that purpose indefinitely. You could use them for a short time, and in fact, it was pretty effective. You know, after World War II, for for a good chunk of time, um, and then this also raises <laughs> this raises the specter of my brother's point. Uh, I don't know if, if have you heard it. Yeah. We didn't talk about to <laughs> my brother, and by the way, I love my brother. I think he's one of the most insightful people on Earth. This particular point of his is one I'm not fond of at all. Okay. His point is we need above-ground nuclear testing in order that people are reminded of just how dangerous these weapons are so that we will not use them. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> I don't agree with that either. Right. Well, yeah. let's put it this way. At the level of thought experiment, I think he's right, which is that Just as you point out that the deterrence um, requires the actual threat, it also requires that people understand how serious that threat is. I don't know how much that is increased by an above-ground nuclear test because it's not like most people can observe it.
0: We don't need it. There's sufficient fear of nuclear weapons and nuclear war for there to be deterrence. In fact, I think that a significant quantity of the fear of nuclear energy is displaced fear of nuclear weapons. All right. You will find that mine is not... um, We'll see yeah we'll see we'll see
1: yeah um but in any case yeah uh so you you we've arrived somewhere interesting you yes. and i agree on the basic picture that yes. you know year to year the world is less uh war less inclined towards war because of the specter of these weapons being used Yep. um but that uh if they were used in earnest that the the net benefit might be radically reversed right Could be. yeah, yeah. Um, especially the major exchange. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> so now let's get to uh,
0: nuclear energy and yep. see where we end up. You want to?
1: Okay. You want to pitch it?
0: Oh yeah, sure. So, um, so nuclear energy, nuclear energy, is the controlled fission process to create heat, to generate steam, to turn turbine and generate electricity. But nuclear energy is also, by generating significant quantities of heat without combustion, is effectively a way to reduce humankind's environmental footprint from energy to close to zero. Mm-hmm. Um, so humans use about half of the ice-free surface of the earth, most of that is for food production. But even food production be- can become significantly uh, shrunk at the footprint if you have sufficient quantities of energy. So the picture here is of gigantic vertical farming. So can I uh, see if I
1: understand this well enough that I can anticipate the connection between those? Yes. The Haber-Bosch process radically increased the amount of food that we could produce. Interestingly, it is also downstream of a weapons technology. Very interesting. The Haber-Bosch process was invented Uh, basically because although nitrogen is extremely plentiful, the accessible nitrogen isn't. And so what uh, Haber-Bosch, and primarily Bosch did, no, it was Fritz Haber, um, did Bosch industrializes it. Okay, so Haber figures out how you can use energy, primarily from fossil fuels, to pull nitrogen uh, out of the atmosphere and turn it into uh, a- compound that is then usable for bombs because of course nitrogen is extremely uh, explosive. Right. The same technology then results in the massive ability to increase the amount of food we can produce because that nitrogen works as a fertilizer and so uh, I forget what the figure is that something like a third of the protein in all of us is actually the result of Haber Bosch. Uh, recovered nitrogen, basically fossil fuels allowed that nitrogen to be brought into a biotical, not even a word, uh, a biotic process to be made into food, which is then incorporated into us.
0: That's right. And so in terms of uh, environmental impacts, we were dependent on manure and guano. And so, and there was obviously there were strict limits in the amount of manure and guano we could find. But more than that, if you have to use um, manure from cows or some other um, animal species, um, you are massively increasing the land footprint. So Haver-Bosch allows, allows for a power density um, improvement. And so you know, from an environmental perspective, energy density and power density are the key mechanism. So if you shrink... You know, if you want to save more environment, then you want to use less environment. And by environment, we can, in this case, if we talk about land. So what nuclear does is it radically reduces the amount of natural resource required to sustain a high energy civilization. So true sustainability, meaning a a high energy human civilization plus a planet that dedicates increasing amounts of landscape and other material throughput to nature or wild nature or whatever we want it to be. It could be parks, golf courses, um, would be one that moves from energy dilute fuels, wood to coal to petroleum and natural gas to uranium. Right. So uh, just
1: to put that in slightly different words, um, what Haberbosch... Did with fossil fuels could be done even more environmentally efficiently if you use uranium as the source material and you uh, use fission to boil water. Yep. Um, Okay. I don't disagree with any of that. Yes. Um, uh, So, first of all, I want to. I have my own way of thinking about nuclear, and it involves us navigating the difference in some of our terminology. I would say. Nuclear is not one process, it is two opposite processes. Um, Fusion, to me, is the solution that you're looking for. We cannot yet do it in a way that is productive and we have been decades away for decades, right? In other words, fusion compared to fusion is so difficult that we have yet to manage it in a way that is other than interesting at a research level. We We may be close or we may not um hopefully we're close but the moment we have fusion power then i'm totally on board with that analysis my concern is fission power and in particular i am most alarmed by uranium right there are other processes in which fission can be used to generate energy that reduce some of these hazards greatly and there are even some that have now positive externalities in terms of burning spent fuel right so I am very cautious about anything on the fission side, but I'm open to the possibility that there are solutions there that we should engage and maybe some that we have to engage now that we have all of the nuclear, the spent fuel that we've Mm -hmm. got stored up. All right. Is it time for me to (laughs) deploy what I think is the argument that reverses this whole picture? Sure. Okay. What should we do with the spent fuel?
0: Okay. well, let me, can I, let me address that, but let me back into it okay. by addressing how I think about energy transitions. And then I want to say something briefly about fusion. So we mostly move towards new fuels because the new fuels become more abundant and cheaper than the incumbents. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not to say that some amount of scarcity and rising prices of the incumbent fuels doesn't encourage the move to the new, But let's just take the most salient example, which is that the United States has uh, uh, reduced our carbon emissions by 22% between 2005 and 2020, Uh, that 61% of that reduction occurred by moving just from coal to natural gas, which produces half the carbon emissions. Um, Similarly, the move from wood to coal mostly occurred because coal was so much cheaper and abundant and uh, more useful than wood. There was some wood scarcity in Britain, but it's been exaggerated. Yeah. Coal mostly opened up new possibilities for producing concentrated heat, particularly the steam engine. But even before that, we had process heat. So wait, I want to put in one piece of the puzzle that yeah. I think
1: belongs here. Wood is renewable. It is also part of a cycle. Right? Which is to say that to the extent that what you do is cut down a piece of forest, burn the wood, and then that forest regrows, the carbon that's been put into the atmosphere is then recaptured by those trees. So there's at least in principle an equilibrium to be had there. Right. Now, wood is not a good fuel. It's, it, it is extremely environmentally destructive to go after it. Right. Um, so I'm not arguing it's a solution, but at least the fact of the, an equilibrium existing there is significant and useful. Yeah. When we liberate fossil fuels, we're taking eons worth of accumulated carbon and releasing it suddenly in a small number of decades, yeah. and that is not part of an equilibrium, that's right? right? And so that is alarming mm-hmm. and dangerous, and um, I assume it animates you as it animates me that you know, that's not a good idea. You're right, right. Change well, Yeah. Yeah. So go ahead. Yeah.
0: So so the energy so energy so the way I think about energy transitions is that the main event is making the new energy cheaper and allowing it to replace the older energy. Now the that's a little contrary to conventional wisdom on climate policy which is to try to make the incumbent energy more expensive. Yep. But if you look at how we actually reduce carbon emissions in the real world it's by making the clean energy source cheaper which was mostly gas. Yep. Now nuclear is a bit of a so on my view of nuclear is that it's super young. Um, people think it's old, but that's an illusion. Um, nuclear fuel, you know, uranium as a fuel, but nuclear as a process is very, very young. And the way I'll illustrate this is by saying that we had a steam engine that existed about 60 years before the Watt steam engine called the Newcomen steam engine that was highly inefficient because the condenser it didn't separate out the condenser. So um, we really get this revolution in terms of the steam engine revolution, which of course gives us trains and factories uh, when we have a modest, some modest technical change to the end use technology, which is the steam engine. That, I think, is still a process that could be occurring with nuclear power plants, but maybe stretched over even a longer period. So I'm going to agree with you that fusion will be superior to fission. I think we will have it. I think it will. Be, I, think it is long, I think it is much further away than almost anybody that I know thinks it's further away. I think it's, if I had to guess, I would say next century, not this century. Mm. Um, and I would say that I think that we'll get it when there's demand for it, meaning somebody really trying to get it. And the reason I think that is because when I look at other energy transitions, like how do we get fracking in the United States? We got it because the peop- because a set of people really wanted it, and they really there was demand for it. There was a high demand for gas, a high price, and the U.S. government really wanted it, and the entrepreneurs really wanted it. So I tend that's how I tend to think about these technologies: is that there needs to be a demand pull and a technological push. There has to be some something that people really want the technology. And there has to be governments kind of pushing to get it. Oh, now now you've got me
1: really wanting to win you over because the the point then is <clears throat> uranium-based fission is then an obstacle to what we really
0: need, which is fusion. I don't think so. I think um, it's actually a path to fusion.
1: So here I'll, I'll yeah. steel man your... Okay. I Imagine your argument is going to be here. The reason that you say that there was demand that you know we can leave aside whether we think fracking is a a decent technology i mean i think it is destructive but obviously it has had a huge upside as well um both in terms of our security you know by liberating uh fuels where we couldn't get them before it has made us safer
2: right
1: um uh and you know what is liberated is comparatively clean but um I think part of what's implied in what you're saying is that it, because it was the same people in the same business as the fuels that were now so expensive, they innovated their way to this, how do we keep getting fossil fuels out of the earth? And the answer is, oh, well, some of it's inconveniently trapped you know, in rock strata. Can we you know, break those strata apart and liberate it, right? Whereas the point is there's nobody in the fusion business. Right, the fusion business is a speculative business, and because of that, the point is the the uranium based nuclear industry isn't pursuing fusion; it's a competitor. Right. right. Um, <clears throat> so I, I I don't like to hear that you think it's it might be next century, but I you know I do think the fact that it, it always seems to be a few decades away is indicative that this is a genuinely difficult problem.
0: Yeah, I mean it's sort of based on. Um... The reason I come to that is that I think, I don't think that there's any scientific, I don't think there's any, um, like nobody thinks that it's scientifically impossible, but everybody, under, everybody thinks it's technologically very difficult. And the things in my, in nuclear fission, I see a lot of people, engineers, who think things are tech, should be technologically simpler, and then they get into them and they discover they're much more technologically difficult. So, I mean, our bathroom remodel was a complete nightmare compared to what we thought it was at the beginning. And that's like a stupid bathroom. Right. Like nuclear power is much more complicated and difficult. The fracking revolution was much more difficult. You know, it wasn't just fracking, it was that they did horizontal wells, and then they had underground maps. They were able to map three-dimensionally using LIDAR and other yeah. technologies. So it was a combination of underground, it was a combination of horizontal drilling fracking and 3D mapping that combine to get this really sophisticated so okay so let's go let's get to the issue of the used fuel rods yeah
1: um so, so actually let me put a piece of information that i yeah. didn't know okay uh,
0: until relatively
1: recently yeah. on the table but apparently um fuel nuclear fuel before it goes into the reactors is not perfectly safe to handle but it's pretty close what happens to it Is that in the process, in the reactors itself, all of these isotopes are created. Some of them are extremely dangerous, things that were not loaded into the reactors like plutonium, for example. Right. And at the at the end of this process, what you get out is physically so hot that it has to be actively cooled for something like five years. Eighteen months. Eighteen months. Yes. Okay. Eighteen months. Pools of water. So wait a second, eighteen months before you can put it into dry cask storage. Correct. Okay. So we're going to get back to dry cask okay, storage, yeah. but 18 months, that's better than five years. It used to be five years. I know I've got that number from somewhere.
0: I've only heard, 18 months is the number I've heard. Okay. but yeah. Now, a lot of fuel
1: rods, even at 18 months, we just leave them in the pools. Right, we are, yes. not, we are not moving everything to dry cask storage no, as no. soon as we could. Yeah, yeah. But in principle, you could move anything.
0: You else. know what? Actually, you might be right on. It's eighteen months. The fuels are in their fission process for eighteen months. I mean, it could be in the pools for five years. Ah, I think they're in the pools that. for five yeah, years. Yeah,
1: and yeah. the reason that they're in the pools for five years is that the amount of decay heat is right. so great yes. that if these things are uncovered, they actually literally catch fire.
0: They
2: right. could, yeah.
1: Um, the solution to this, ultimate, well, you have to be vigilant about keeping them with circulating cold water for yes. uh, some period of time, yet to be determined. Maybe we'll uh, add it to the notes here, but I think it's five years, mm-hmm. and then um, you could move it to something called dry cask storage. Now, dry cask storage, we do, yeah, is do. not a great solution, but it's better in that it doesn't require any vigilance. It's basically. Um, a steady state in which the, the no energy is required in order to keep the stuff cool, it yes. doesn't catch fire, etc. Yep. So what we've got is a problem where we've been accumulating fuel. Most of the fuel that we've accumulated is now in the range where it could be put into dry cast storage. I don't know what the percentage is, but a lot of fuel that could be put into dry cast storage isn't. It remains in the fuel pools.
0: Well, in the United States? I believe so. Um, that's not my understanding. My understanding is that it all goes into dry cast storage. Really? Yeah. I mean, because the, the pools would get full.
2: The um, pools would be
0: filled. And they're not constructing new pools. They're just moving the... So, but you're right that, so... so yeah, so it comes out of the reactor, goes into the pools, and then it comes out of the pools and goes into dry cast storage. We agree that once in dry cast storage, it's
2: once fine.
1: It, I don't agree at all that it's fine, but okay. it doesn't require vigilance.
0: It requires some vigilance. It requires that you
1: protect the site yes right but it does not require you know the fuel pools will go dry in a small number of hours if the power that circulates the water is turned off this is what we learned at fukushima i mean yeah the well the
0: rod the the fuel well they didn't lose those uh those fuel rods they stayed they did manage yeah. well yeah. i think there was
1: evidence that they c- became uncovered through herculean efforts of very courageous yeah. people they were kept wet and we didn't get one of these massive fuel pool fires, but you know, let's put it this way, if one of those pools had cracked so that it couldn't be filled with water, we would be in a whole different situation.
0: Well, yeah, they'd have to be put in, they'd have to be taken out and put into cool water. And it's not obvious that you could do it in the number of hours
1: that you had, especially with uh, the tangle that you had after the earthquake, Um, you know, in other words. I think the number of scenarios in which the Fukushima site could have gotten away from control, right? Where you wouldn't have had these heroic people maintaining control over the site, but a small number of, a small bit of extra bad luck would have resulted in the site becoming ungovernable. Like Chernobyl. Uh, Chernobyl was ultimately rendered
0: governable. Right. But the, but l- l- let's, let's work our way to the accidents. Let's just finish okay. the fuel cycle. Yeah. So. Um, so we have a cycle where the, the fuel rods, they, they split atoms for 18 months in yep. the reactor core. They come out, they go into pools of water for five years. I think that's probably right. Um, and then they go into dry cast storage. Yeah. Um, what could, let's consider what risks there are in the dry cast storage for a minute. because yep. Let's come back to the pools, which I agree is a sensitive part of the process. Um, they're, they're just these old used fuel rods that are in cement and conc- uh, they're in a steel and concrete yeah. at the site of production. Um, at the site of use. At the site of, yeah, at the site of, yeah, I see it, The site of the fission process. Yeah. The site of electricity production, Very not the site of the fuel rod production. Um, there are some countries that are... Uh, like Sweden, that are now going to move them into an underground repository. That was a proposal to do that in Nevada. Yeah. As a newcomer to this field, I never understood why they wanted to do that. Um, what was wrong with keeping them above ground? Um, so one thing is you asked, well, what could could you make a bomb out of the used fuel rods? So it's worth pointing out that the used fuel rods have been enriched, the uranium in them has been enriched to around 5%. Yeah. Um, to get bomb material, they need to be enriched over 90%. So we've already, we don't have the enrichment high enough for the be bombs, but plus now they're, uh, they've been, the vision has, the process has occurred. There's still a lot of energy that could still be released, but the current process is so inefficient that yeah. most of the energy um, cannot be released without what we call reprocessing the fuel rods. The French do that. They then take those used fuel rods and they put them through a mile long facility to reprocess the fuel rods. And from that, they were able to extract more and more fuel. That process is, nobody disagrees, is more expensive than what we do, but it has the benefit of creating plutonium, which the French then can use for their weapons program. We create plutonium, just so there's a lot of mythologies about it, but we create plutonium for our weapons in a different process.
1: Yeah. Um, um, so I will say, although I think the proliferation issue <clears throat> is real, yeah. Almost none of my objection to uh, uranium-based vision
0: is it's, based on that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we can set that aside. Um, so then we're now we're dealing with the pools issue and the risk of a um, really, a, let's call it a meltdown combined with a fire where you'd have significant quantities of radioactive particles released into the natural environment outside of containment.
1: Yeah, so... Um, Let's just do a a proof of concept. Yeah. At Fukushima, we had a triple meltdown. One of those meltdowns uh, in Reactor Building 3 was different than the others. It was um, more catastrophic, although Reactor 4, the building got severely damaged. The explosion in Reactor 3 was different. And the likely reason for that was that Reactor 3 was running uh mox fuel mixed oxide which actually includes plutonium reprocessed from decommissioned weapons um so anyway it is on the one hand efficient to use that material to generate some energy on the other hand it creates a worse meltdown scenario none of the fuel pools so these are large elevated pools um none of them cracked in any of these
0: explosions. Terrible things And these were about hydrogen gas explosions, not nuclear fission explosions.
1: Well, the one in Building 3 looks to have been a prompt criticality. There does appear to have been a nuclear detonation, but the explosions that ripped apart the buildings were hydrogen explosions. They were hydrogen explosions just so that people who are watching get it. The idea is that the radioactivity actually tore apart the water producing hydrogen and oxygen so that right. inside the containment buildings you had hydrogen building up with oxygen and then it takes nothing to yeah some sort of ignition some sort yeah. of, something ignites it and yeah. this left a terrible terrible mess including buildings that even robots couldn't go into and last more than i don't know an hour to even survey and do cleanup work right anyway so it was a terrible mess but it yeah. was not nearly as bad as it might have been right? Had one of these fuel pools cracked, these are elevated fuel pools up above these reactors, right? Had one of these fuel pools cracked, and there's no reason other than luck that we didn't get a crack, it would have emptied of water. The fuel rods were so hot that the zirconium cladding would have caught fire, and you would have had this radioactive smoke pouring out of these fuel pools until the fire burned itself out. There wouldn't have even been any way to fight such a fire right? The radioactivity would have been so intense that there would have been no way for human technology to successfully contain it. It just would have had to go out.
0: Well, right. I mean, or it would have been like Chernobyl.
1: Well, in Chernobyl, there was a mechanism and people did die, but it was a small number of people uh, who died. And we were talking about, you know, the reactor core, not an accumulation of a bunch of cores sitting in a pool that would have gone dry. Now, mind you, didn't even require a crack in a fuel pool. The power had simply remained out and heroic humans had not been able to restore circulation. The water would have boiled off and the same thing would have happened. It would have caught fire. So my point to you begins with the reactors we presently have are structured in a way that events that are plausible could result. In something that would make one of these sites ungovernable, and I don't regard Chernobyl as ungovernable.
0: Well, I, I mean, what
1: does ungovernable mean? It means that human beings can no longer remain on site to do the heroic work necessary to control the release of the pent-up fuel.
0: Well, I'm not so sure. I mean, in other words, I think if the fuel if the, if the used if the fuel rods in the pool were on fire, I think that the Japanese government would go send people to put the fire out firefighters. Remember, so let's just remember Chernobyl. Chernobyl, we had uh, um, an explosion, um, a fire, and uh, melted fuel exposed to the uh, environment. And melted fuel in the
1: basement below the reactor, you had fuel rods, raw fuel rods Ever. Thrown by the explosion, yeah. out of the building, yep. Yeah. Uh, so strewn around the uh, right, the, the environment,
0: right. And so we, and and so basically, at uh, after that accident, um, about twenty-eight firefighters died at the accident, and then let's say another, uh, you know, fifty, or another, another uh, you know, another an- about fifty total. Then a few weeks later. Then you get so so we in so we had and some of and then you have over a period of years maybe 200 of the first responders died and some of them though died in circumstances which are they drank too much or they were killed in car accidents so we're not totally sure but like let's say a couple hundred people yep. died. Then we had an increase in thyroid cancer. Yeah. Uh, about let's say 4,000, uh, which is a highly treatable cancer. Um, you remove the thyroid gland and you take thyroxin. So you, nobody wants to get cancer, but A lot of us will get it, and if you had to get cancer... It's not a bad one. It's not a bad one. So 4,000 premature deaths over an 80-year period from thyroid cancer. No increase in other cancers, according to the United Nations investigations.
1: Yes, there's a question about how good those numbers are, how sensitive those measures are. Um, There's also a question... Uh, let's say that Chernobyl. Uh, obviously, the reactors were very different, and there was a part of the Chernobyl disaster that was very Russian in nature because yeah. the the way the reactor was structured um, was more dangerous. On the other hand, um, what if a Chernobyl-like accident happened at Diablo Canyon? Who fights the
0: fire? The firefighters. What if they don't go? Well, they have to go. It's their well, job. It's like saying... Um, what happened in Uvalde? What happened um, What happened in 9-11? Well, we had heroes going into those buildings. But yeah. I, what
1: I'm saying is yeah. there's a question. First of all, we know what happened to those buildings. Yes. We do not know what happens if Diablo Canyon does what Chernobyl did. We do not know the psychology of people and who has what authority to order whom to fight what fires at what cost. Right. To their families. And basically, but, yeah. you know.
0: Let's go back to just a want to, I want to address that. I don't, I don't want to skip over But I want to continue the Chernobyl conversation. So with Chernobyl, we did have significant radioactive release. Yep. Um, and I think um, uh, what I would say, and I suspect you would agree, is that we're not saying that the radiation release didn't cause any cancers. What we're saying is it didn't cause enough cancers to detect an increase over the baseline of cancers that had been occurring b- before that. In other words, we don't see an increase in cancers, um, uh, non-thyroid cancers after Chernobyl to kind of go, so it's not to say that no one did, it just says that a lot of people die, you know, we have a significant percentage of people that get cancer and a significant percentage of people that die from cancer. So if I right. did have an increase, it was not detectable at, The levels at which we're able to monitor cancer mortality. Right. I would
1: argue that it's a nightmare scenario in the sense that what you're talking about, first of all, people do not intuit the difference between the danger of radiation, which in large measure people are too afraid of, and the danger of radioactive particles, which people are not afraid of enough, in my opinion. That Radioactive particles are a particular medical hazard because we do not have evolutionary experience with them and therefore we do not have mechanisms that protect us. Whereas radiation is a fact of living in the universe and we are pretty well protected against transient radiation exposures below a threshold. Yeah, the, to
0: be fair, they, when the, the people in Fukushima that uh, live in Fukushima province after the accident and who lived in areas where they had high levels of consumption of radioactive particles in their food and diet namely the people the farmers who lived around there did not have elevated rates of cancer according to them A british medical journal okay
1: now the problem is that i have now watched the british medical journal engaged in covid shenanigans i've watched the japanese government engaged in all kinds of post fukushima shenanigans like adding non-radioactive material to radioactive waste to bring it below a threshold that made it legal to burn, transporting radioactive material around Japan to mask the signal of the difference between the exposed population and the unexposed population. So the point is, look, I would love to say, let's just look at the evidence and see how dangerous these things actually were, but at some level, one gets the idea that lots of people are not really interested in the evidence being reviewed in an objective way. Yeah. And when they have control over what access we get to the evidence, uh, I become agnostic about how good that evidence actually is.
0: Okay, well, so one of the, the characters in Apocalypse Never who I have told the story of the evidence is Jerry Thomas. She's a professor at Imperial College London. Her mother died of leukemia. She's been very concerned about cancer. She ran the Chernobyl Tissue Bank which is a a bank of all the tissues of of the thyroid glands. Um, Goes back and forth to, you know, dealt with victims of Chernobyl, deeply sympathetic person, never been on the payroll of the nuclear industry, independent scholar. And she walks, I'll have her walk the reader through the evidence. And the picture is basically, it's not like that there's no risk. It's just that these risks are outweighed by Other risks in people's look in in other people's lifestyles.
1: You and I well, not only in other people's lifestyles, but the problem is we have a human bias issue. Yes. Right? If you have, you know, nineteen kids and two teachers gunned down at school, it captivates the imagination and we become focused on it. If policy about the quality of the food that children are eating kills you know 20 times that number every year right we don't notice it right right and so there's no question that wrapped up in the nuclear issue the nuclear power issue is the question of the relative costs and benefits and that it's hard to look away from four thousand you know deaths from thyroid cancer because we can say hey those are probable cancers you know those people died from something that was spit out of this one building right we get that we don't get that um, the way we generate you know coal is dirty right right it puts particles in the air people breathe those particles they have respiratory issues you know so you know a a proper analysis would look downstream of all of these technologies and it would be dispassionate about you know, yep, yeah, certain number of people are going to die as a result of nuclear accidents. That's unfortunate, but we have to compare it to the number of people who would die from other consequences of Air the technology.
0: Is the usual comparison. Right. Yeah.
1: So I'm not in yeah. any way discounting that a proper analysis might look at a shocking number of nuclear deaths and say, yes, but in comparison to the technology, right. we didn't deploy, it's actually fewer. Right, right, right. My concern, and I don't know, I don't know if we are at the place to position it but um you still haven't told me what we do with the waste
0: okay you and i
1: agree dry cast is yeah, yeah, yeah. better than fuel pool all
0: right well let me say one thing about two about the um there's also i want to say something about the, the uh, deaths um because i think it's a point of confusion world health organization says six million deaths a year from air pollution um, and then we say 4,000 deaths from thyroid cancer, from Chernobyl. In both cases, we're talking about premature deaths and almost all end of life. It's the same as the 000, the famous 400,000 tobacco deaths a year. Fast majority of people, it's end of life. And so it's a contributor to end of life, not a sole cause. By contrast, 105,000 people this year will die from drug overdose and drug poisonings instantly right and there's nobody there's nobody and nobody that says it contributed they say the fentanyl killed them it wasn't their obesity or their cigarette smoking or their alcoholism it's just the fentanyl so we have a hundred just to put these numbers in perspective right 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 look i I'm, and, and, yeah no, well, just, to, just to kind of yeah
1: oh i i think this is a this is very important and yeah. people don't do this analysis well in yeah. fact this completely polluted our understanding yeah. of covid you yeah. really want to
0: say yes. how many years of life were lost, yes. right? And so the point is, yeah. you know. 95 year old woman, a 95 year old obese woman who smokes, who dies of COVID. Right. It's kind of like, what are we talking about here, guys? Right. I
1: mean, it, you know, it's sad, but the point yeah. is, we ought to have said, well, why am I, you know, vaccinating this 12 year old? increasing their chance of myocarditis yeah. in order to protect very old people. What yeah. society puts children at risk to protect very old people? So yeah, yes, so that kind of analysis has to be done here. Yeah.
0: Um, and, and we're terrible at talking about it. And the news media, partic- I mean, we're good at talking about it in podcasts. Where we have some time to stretch into it. But I mean, even I, when I was early advocating for nuclear, would say, air pollution kills 6 million people a year. And it's not really correct. It's right. more like you should. And so what I try to say now is I say, According to the World Health Organization, air pollution shortens the lives of six right. million people a year. Now, with COVID, it's even trickier because you could say the same thing. You say COVID shortened the lives of a significant number of people. Is it really? The language doesn't really help because if you say fentanyl shortened the lives of seventy-one thousand Americans, it misses the fact that some of these guys were in their twenties, right? And they and they could have lived until they were a hundred. No, um, we, we need to get good at this. And we yeah. need to
1: start talking yeah. about things like yeah. all, all-cause mortality yeah. and yeah. years of life lost.
0: Yeah. And We should reserve the word killed for things where it's like fentanyl killed 71,000 people. Air pollution shortens the lives of 6 million. I think it's the right way to say it. So, right. Okay. And
1: in fact, at some point, th- this is not the time, but we yeah. should talk about uh, my early work. As a graduate student, I worked on the reason that we have evolved to become feeble with age and it has to do with avoiding cancer and basically all of these things um your ability to repair your tissues is uh well it's set differently for each tissue but you basically have an amount of repair you can do mm-hmm. so anything that expends that reserve capacity accelerates you towards death right right um and the- so there's a question about how much of your capacity is burned up by these things, and we yeah. really ought to be thinking in that more yes. integrative.
2: Way. I agree. Okay. All right. Um,
0: so let's get to the tech. Yeah. Um, so so first, I should, let me say let me say before I say anything about the use the 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 fuel the pools, um, if we think there's a problem with pools, we should fix the pools. To I'm the extent we can. Yep. Yeah. Um, I am. Um, So I'm a heretic among environmentalists because I'm pro-nuclear. I'm also a heretic among pro-nuclear people in that I am skeptical of the alternatives to the water-cooled nuclear tech that we have. Part of my reason for my skepticism started in 2015 when I go to China and we're at a workshop among nuclear engineers in China about alternatives to water-cooled nuclear. And they, the daytime, they all get up and give their presentations about how we can cool nuclear with helium gas, we can cool it with fluoride and beryllium, we can cool it with lead, we can cool it with sodium. And it's all very promising because then you can't have meltdowns because the fuel's already melted in a combination, or the gas-cooled means the way that the gas-cooled plants, Britain, by the way, is mostly carbon dioxide gas-cooled nuclear. That if there's a loss of coolant, the there's convection heating, so the the fuels don't melt down. They just they just heat the whole plant up, and then the heat dissipates, and so you don't get a meltdown. Problems. So you're talking out, about in the reactor? Yeah, okay. the whole actually the whole building. <laughs> yeah. Um. So. So then you. So that's the daytime. Then you get to the nighttime, and we go out for, for dinner. And since I'm I'm uh, I'm an anthropologist, not a uh, a STEM person. The evenings when all the Chinese engineers are drunk are the most informative parts of the (laughs) meeting. And I kind of go, what's the real deal? And they're kind of like, these these designs are, you know, really far away. And they're hard for us as the top nuclear engineers in the world to operate. And then you get to your average Joe operating, Homer Simpson operating a nuclear plant. They need to be safe enough for, okay, not Homer, but somebody... uh, Nuclear engine, nuclear workers, nuclear power plant workers tend to be paid more than coal power plant workers, but they still need to be, you know, able to work in Springfield, uh, Ohio. So I tend to be a technological conservative in that I have seen a lot of engineers, engineers can be arrogant, and then there's just a different issue, which has nothing to do with that, which is that it's just you don't know what you don't know. So we didn't know what was going to go wrong with our bathroom remodel. Imagine what happens when you get to a totally different kind of nuclear power plant. So I tend to want to see incremental improvements to the water-cooled systems we have. And so if we've got a concern and if we think there's a concern with the, the pools, um, I'm open to seeing the fixes. The fixes that we've made in terms of loss of coolant not necessarily for the pools, although it would probably apply, is we've basically started moving water uphill. So if there's a loss of power, and that's what they've done at Diablo. They have big pools of water uphill. But then what you really should do, I mean, the first thing is, if you have a loss of coolant on the reactor cores, you need to get water over the reactor cores right away. In Fukushima, for a variety of reasons, they they did not, they should have, they, should have, they hesitated and they should not have to pump seawater, seawater right because over the it would course. corrode everything. It would destroy the core. So it would completely destroy them. But they yeah. should have been like that. Should have been an obvious thing. There's like five other things that went wrong at yeah. Fukushima as as usual. So it's understandable that engineers would look for a different nuclear tech. I tend to think I look at nuclear and I go, "This is this really radical technology. It's not even using combustion." Yeah. Um, you get to, you know, uh, you go from coal to gas. It's a big improvement, but you're still burning something at the end of the day. You get to, I look at nuclear and I go, you know, it's like I look at jet planes. Jet plane technology, jet have not has not changed fundamentally since 1945. Yeah. It's improved enormously, but what's really improved is the system around the technology so you see air miles traveled graphs air miles traveled just skyrockets and crash and mortality from jet planes goes down well what's going on are the jet turbines themselves better yeah but what's really better is air traffic control maintenance operations we figured out all
1: the stuff that
0: human factors so you look at you know there's a collaboration at one point between hospitals and nuclear power plants in terms of like human factors. And it was like the nuclear the, the hospital guys were like, the nuclear power plants are doing human factors at whole other levels, you know. And part of it was Three Mile Island was one of the most important things ever to happen to the nuclear industry. They they went from running the plants 55% of the year, which is known as the capacity factor, to now they run 92% of the year. And they just did it because they basically eliminated um they eliminated accidental uh, shutdowns of the reactors. They improved the fuel reloading times. The second best thing for nuclear was Chernobyl. The third best thing was Fukushima. That's so, a dangerous game, there, my friend. Well, except for you, kind of go. You know, you know, Fukushima. Nobody, you know, nobody was killed by the radiation.
1: Uh, that's not true. You don't. You don't think it's true. Well, it depends what you mean by the radiation. Um, yeah, lots of particles escaped. Yeah. Fukushima, and uh, people will, you know, die of bone cancer, and we won't detect it. Okay,
0: in that yes. sense, yeah. yeah. Okay, contributed, maybe. Yeah, lots of people will have lost lots of years yeah.
1: of useful life, which is not in and of itself an argument yeah. against yeah. nuclear power for reasons. That I mean, nobody like they
0: did at Chernobyl,
1: right? People are well, inside.
0: That guy, <laughs> acute radiation sickness. Acute radiation
1: sickness. Yeah. Although I'm not convinced nobody did. There is reason to wonder whether or not there are people absent from those analyses. But I agree with okay. you. We, don't, we have, don't have good evidence. We don't have clear evidence. Yeah.
0: So you kind of go, so then you kind of go, all right, well, so then um, if you just use the basic World Health Organization math, um, my friend the climate scientist James Hansen calculates that nuclear power has saved, again, the language, we don't have the right language, but has prevented the premature deaths of two million people because of preventing ordinary air pollution.
1: All right, so I'm now going to lay my argument against nuclear power out for you and your friend James Hansen, who I hope becomes my friend James Hansen because I'm quite an admirer of his. Um, Here's the problem. What do we do with the fuel, the expensive? Okay,
0: I think it's best where it is at the site of electricity production. I see no reason to move it. I think we will in the next century reuse that fuel in new reactors that are fast reactors yeah. that reuse the fuel. But where it is now, it's the best place for it. There's no need to transport it. We can just keep it on site. Yeah. You're just it's fine where it
1: is. Stepped into my trap. Okay. I mean, there was no way out of my trap, but you stepped okay. into it. Okay. So it's the best place for it. Yes. It's a terrible place for it. Okay. It's not saying We're it's down. not best. Okay. Here's the thing, because we've never figured out what to do with that spent fuel, and it just keeps accumulating in the dry cast storage. In any in any version,
0: Look, well, the fuel pools. I agree it, that the pools are the most sensitive place oh, for it. It's the, the most yeah. the most likely place
1: for us to lose control of one of these sites, which has not happened yet.
0: It happened at Chernobyl.
1: It didn't happen at Chernobyl. The fires were fought. A number of people died fighting fires, doing heroic yeah. things. I'm talking about something that would prevent a site from being manageable where you would just have to let it unfold.
0: But why would anybody do that? <laughs> because... Like, uh, when, when would would of firefighters be like, we're not going to go do our job and put that fire out?
1: Well, first of all, I don't know anything about the um, psychology of firefighters who are downstream of the awareness of what happened to the firefighters who fought at chernobyl it's possible that in you know in uh in the context of certain cultures that there it is possible to simply order people to go to their deaths fighting nuclear fires and and the like it is possible to reward people's families enough that somebody would rationally do so um but it doesn't mean that i think if uh diablo canyon uh diablo canyon uh was to be in a serious crisis that we necessarily know what would happen and effectively what we have to know is that at every single one of the 400 civilian nuclear reactors operating on planet earth today that the proper structures are in place to get somebody to fight that fire even if it is at the cost of their life then there's a question about do we reach levels of radiation so high that actually it is implausible that you could fight, you know, that the fire is too big and the level of radiation is so high that you actually can't get anybody to do the work because it is too devastating too early.
0: Okay, but so uh, let's let's deal with the first issue of, we have fire, so not, how many firefighters do we think died in 9-11? It was, was it over, was it hundreds, right?
1: It, I believe so, I'm not sure. Yeah, so,
0: so I mean we have firefighters that um, sign up for a job that is by its nature dangerous, that they rush into buildings that are at risk of collapse, they are surrounded by stories of people dying. We have um, militaries which are formed of young men that, contrary to uh, so their instinct for self preservation, die. Right. Often fighting to protect, you know, Afghan girls and we have and Iraqi people that they've never
1: met before. Right. But there's a difference between entering a scenario in which uh, you feel you have a pretty good chance of surviving and a hopeless scenario, which is what happened at Chernobyl, right? People walked into a hopeless scenario and did the work. Yeah. Right. And thank goodness that they did. Um, the question is, can, can we rely on that 100% of the time? Wow, nothing I know about humans tells me that you could rely on that 100% of
0: the time. But then what would the, what would be the specific, So, In other words, okay, but so we could imagine that at a chemical refinery, right? Yep. Um, so what makes nuclear different? I mean, in other words, why would they be less likely to... Well, you know, I'm not certain I know enough
1: about what chemistry we're doing in chemical plants, but my sense is chemical plants, we have conceivable protective gear for virtually any scenario that would unfold yeah and so it would be possible to manage your way through it but radiation is a different a different animal altogether in other words yeah. the fact that you can be exposed to such huge amounts of radiation that you effectively fail on the spot is
0: a hazard well it's it's actually i mean i don't think that there's there's i mean it's just a it's a hot fire right so the acute radiation sickness is not happening faster than the fire. You, so you have a let's say you have a fire um, in one of the pools. Yep. You send in a bunch of firefighters and you're like, "Look, oh, guys, this send is a bad them in, one. in." what way? Um, well, I mean, send. I mean, they're going to be they're um, the same way you send them into any fire. Well, right. but are they shooting water out of hoses into a fire into a pool that's cracked? I don't think. No, it would probably not be water. Okay. Probably some other in, probably some other fire retardants. Um, do we have that fire retardant
1: that you could pour into a cracked pool that actually shuts down that fire?
0: I mean, it wouldn't be water, right? It would be no, some understand. sort of fire retardant to put sure, out the, some sort of same thing they did with Chernobyl, right? Um, where they're spraying they're spraying material to put out the fire and to cover it, cover up the radioactive materials.
1: I don't think Chernobyl's issue was a fire. I think There was a fire. There were there was certainly fire, yeah. but that wasn't the primary issue. Basically getting the material yeah. back into the core and then covering it so that it was not emitting.
0: Well, they put on the fire, and then the days that followed, they had um these guys called liquidators that would go in for very brief periods of yeah, time. And shovel the stuff off. And shovel stuff and maybe they'd like have a stopwatch and they would go in and It is what it is. No,
1: because a fuel pool fire is a different animal, right? If you had that material on fire from its own internal heat, I don't think there is anything that you could do, or if there is, I want to know what that plan is now. I don't want to find out about it after some fuel pool has cracked and dried.
0: But do you doubt that there is a plan? I
1: mean... I doubt that there's a good plan.
0: I, I would suspect the plan's better now than it's ever been, given that we are trying to Fukushima. Okay. I, I, I,
1: I am entitled to know it as a okay. person living on this planet with these reactors.
0: But I mean, I would suspect that um, it's basically a plan to get material onto the, you, the burning... Right. Uh, I, want to know, I want to know what
1: the yeah. material is. I want okay. to know what the mechanism of delivery is and how tolerant it is to the chaos of a one-off accident. Yeah. Right. Something like happened at Fukushima. Right. Where we got very lucky. Right. You had multiple meltdowns. Right. You had the aftermath of a massive earthquake. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. All sorts of challenges. There.
0: A tsunami that killed fifteen thousand people instantly. Right. Didn't contribute to deaths, but killed fifteen thousand people instantly. Right. <laughs> killed 15, <laughs> instantly.
1: Right. Right. And you know, yeah, swamped the, the yeah, yeah. generators and all, but. I want to know what those plans are i want to know what the material is i want to know are you delivering it by helicopter if not by helicopter by what other means what kind of energy does it require how effective is it how tolerant is it to the different ways that a pool could fail how tolerant is it to the number of hours after the pool has failed that you get there in other words how much fire has occurred how much further damage to the Mm -hmm. pool how much melting all of these things are highly relevant to whether you can get anything to stick to these elevated pools to shut down that fire because my contention is That, what we've got currently is a system in which we mine uranium, we enrich it, we then put it through a reactor, and we make materials that are as toxic as anything on Earth, and then we don't have a plan for long-term storage, which means-
0: Well, no, we have, but we just agree that we do have a plan for the long-term storage. We're or, talking about the pools. No,
1: no, we don't have a plan. I mean,
0: the dry cast storage isn't gonna, those Those fuel rods in dry cast storage are not gonna catch on fire. No, they're not gonna catch
1: on fire, but okay. how long do they remain contained? Well, why is that even a concern? Because ultimately, I believe if you don't have a plan for long-term storage, And I don't think Yucca Mountain is a plan, obviously it didn't unfold that way. But if you don't have a plan for long-term storage, every bit of this stuff that you produce is ultimately going to find its way into the environment. And that's my concern. Okay, but that's a
0: very, all right, I'm glad we're switching to this. So let's, let's agree that um, um, I'm going to get back to you with, uh, and we're going to look at how do we deal with the fire at the uh, spent fuel pools. Yep. And what do we do if there's a loss of water in the pools? It's an interesting question. I suspect that there's a very detailed description, but, but you've inspired me to, to awesome. look into it and we'll do it. So let's go to the long-term used fuel rods in the steel and cement. So we have a lot, so we can agree. Brad. So let's just say, yeah. I am quite heartened
1: to hear that you're a fan of dry cask storage. Yes, And I think you would join me in saying we are insane to leave anything in a fuel pool that is ready to be moved that to the extent yes. that we have materials yeah. that have built up. It is crazy to have it in some system that requires vigilance when it could be moved to some system that is potentially durable. No, for as soon
0: as we can get into... I, I've gone to the casks, I've wrapped my arms around them. I've held a Gagger counter or, or yeah. The next to the them, I'm totally satisfied with Great. so, so th- this
1: is this is something on which you and I are totally right. Yeah. No matter what else we conclude, okay, it it makes sense for us yeah. to move everything as soon as it can be moved into a stable
0: form. Yeah, I can't I can't imagine um if there, I don't know why anybody wouldn't want to do that, but My, we can look into it. I can't imagine it would be cheaper to keep it in the pools than in the dry cast storage.
1: I believe so. It's been okay. years since I looked at this, but okay. I believe that this is the reason that
0: the industry hasn't done it, is that it is
1: expensive to move it to dry cast storage. But it is in dry cast storage. Some of it. Well, I mean, at, well, Diablo
0: Canyon, at Diablo Canyon and Palo Verde, I've seen it. It's in dry cast storage. Um, and besides, it would just accumulate. I mean, if it wasn't, they would, the pools would be... Would filling be, up. Well, yeah, and they can't be the those rods. They can't be too close together,
2: right? right?
1: Obviously, you create
2: yeah. efficient. Uh, you create efficiency to do that. Yeah. Um,
1: my belief is that they are overpacked in these pools, um, and I will be very so. You're yeah. in a better position to get this information than if, I. Am.
0: Yeah, if they're I, just the principle being, we should get them into dry cast storage as, as, possible, as quickly as possible. Quickly, as possible. possible totally any, quickly. And any rational yeah. plan would involve. Okay, so let's deal with the rods and the dry cast storage. Yeah. So it seems like. We can agree that there are dangerous substances in the world. Yep, beyond the materials in the dry cast storage. Mm, there
1: are very few things worse than uh isotopes of plutonium with a 200,000 year half-life.
0: Um uh but there's thing we would agree that there's things in the world that can poison people. Yeah, and that we sure. would want to avoid them. Well, but you know,
1: let's put it this way. There's a lot of stuff the part of the problem with these reactors is that they create this um mixture of different levels of toxicity, you know, strontium and cesium isotopes that are quite dominant in there, have a half-life of 30 years. So anyway, you get this weird mixture.
0: Okay. But let's say, let's say, okay, let's say my my neighbor's got solar panels on his roof. Okay. Um, When they take them down, they put a big cardboard box on the driveway and they send up the guys to rip them off the roof. They rip them off the roof. They chuck them in the cardboard box. As soon as they're chucked into the cardboard box... Are considered hazardous waste. Why? Because the hazardous metals in them, including the lead for soldering yeah. them, um, becomes pulverized and is at risk of being inhaled. Mm-hmm. Um, the Europeans have solved this by delicately taking down the fragile solar panels and into Africa, where they use them for a few more years, and then they go to the non-dump, and then the and then they sometimes disassemble them with other electronics, and people are exposed to hazardous materials. Yeah. So, in terms of risk comparison the steel cast storage has less risk of being in the environment than the solar panels. No, no. The question is how long a plant, let's assume... I mean, the solar panels, there's no time at all, they're just, they're hazardous right away. Yeah, I'm not
1: real worried about the solar panels for obvious reasons. It's not that I'm not worried about... The lead, but the point is, are these a significant contributor to the excess toxicity that we face in modern times? The solar panels are a
0: bigger contributor than the used fuel rods.
1: No, no. This is exactly the problem. Um, nuclear energy is quite clean. It is not as clean as the industry would like us to believe. There are emissions from these plants, but it is comparatively clean yeah. while things are going well. Right. It runs the risk of being the dirtiest process on Earth all of a sudden, right? And so, it does not make sense. You cannot take the instantaneous measure and say, well, this plant is comparative. No, sure, but
0: we're talking about Chernobyl. So, but so okay, but I'm just saying, in other words, you, your question is, and this is why I do think, by the way, it's displacement, um, is that you kind of go, what are we going to do with these used fuel rods over the long term? And I'm like keep them safe on site until they end up being reused um, in future reactors. If they do. If they do, and if they don't, then they're just like any other dangerous thing that we monitor. No, 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 no,
1: no. no. First of all, um, we are in far too much danger of all of the structures that keep the lights on failing catastrophically. I mean, the danger that we run from a solar storm knocking out a third of the power grid of North America simultaneously, for which we don't apparently have a backup plan, Right. That danger is high. Okay. Right. Basically, we and people it. would die. Oh, a lot of huge people. numbers of people. It's not. Okay. I mean, and nuclear reactors might well become little nuclear volcanoes in such a scenario.
0: Uh, No, if there was a, if there's power outers, they would power down. Well, but they can't just power down. That's the
1: problem is you have to cool the fuel yeah. for five years. So yeah. the point is what you need is sufficient power of governance to deliver Diesel fuel to those reactors yes. in their shutdown condition for as many years as it takes to get the grid
0: back up. Well, years. Yes. I mean, from a co- from a. Co- I mean, not years. Yeah. No. Yeah. I've never seen years as the estimate. Do you know why? Be-
1: and this is the craziest thing
0: of all. This tells you how how yeah.
1: dangerous it is to depend on government to protect you. Yeah. The transformers on which the grid depends. Cannot be ordered off the shelf. It takes something like a year. If you were to order one now, it would take right. a year for it to be delivered.
0: So you know the whole. But if the whole. But Brett, if the whole grid goes down, I'm talking about a third of. The okay, if American, a third of the grid goes down. Yeah, because um, I was thinking about Texas. Um, you know, where it's like a cold start would definitely take weeks uh, to get a, to get the whole. Yeah, Texas grid if, back up. if the transformers are fried by a solar
1: right. storm, you have to replace yeah.
0: them. Yeah, but so I kinda go, if if we lose a third of the grid for years, um yeah, the military needs to keep the nuclear plants operating, but like you're talking yeah. about like mass death.
1: I'm talking about an accelerating pattern of chaos that the military yeah. might lose its ability to reliably deliver diesel fuel to those generators.
0: So then why would you be so but it's actually like it reminds me of these conversations where people are like, What if there's a big earth like one of the big earthquakes that hits California? No, 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 no.
1: This one is far well, but, than that but in
0: either, But in either case, you would be like, there would be a lot of death going on that has nothing to do with nuclear. I don't know why that, that death is, is such a focus for you. My
1: point is, you don't want a process that creates positive feedback, where chaos that would come yeah. from the grid going down... Would then be compounded by nuclear reactors that were dependent on that grid, turning into little nuclear volcanoes.
0: Well, you're saying those then you have a refugee where, crisis. Yeah, but so you're saying that if there was, um, we need to basically keep the cool water running through the pools. And I'm like, seeing- by the way, you'd be you be pumping. By that point, like if you're pumping cold water into the pools um, with diesel generators, you're that's the that's the, the and the power plants power down. Um. I have to say, I just find it a strange. It's an odd thing to be worried about when you've got like, like all of civilization is broken down. Like, why is the nuclear the concern? Well, first, isn't that way, a kind of displacement? No, not not on the not on the slightest. First yeah. of all, you're, you're dealing with an evolutionary biologist,
1: so it's yeah. not that weird for me to think on longer time scales. Yeah, right. Humans, all of us along with every other creature, are the result of a three and a half billion year long winning streak in which none of us who are here have failed to reproduce even once, right? So we're here and it's an amazing bit of luck. The idea that we are playing with technologies that not only put many, many, many people in jeopardy, but that potentially put the entire project in jeopardy, you know, the human project coming to an end, frightens me. And even a small risk of that is something we would have to engage in very, very soberly.
2: But I just—I'm trying
0: to—the risk would be losing your entire electricity grid. No, no, no. Not no. the spent fuel. The, the, in the, losing, the le-
1: losing the electricity grid and not having a plan for restoring it quickly is a recipe for chaos. I let's put it this way: Yeah. If I compare two scenarios, okay. One in which chaos erupts because we have not taken care of our nuclear grid problem, but there are no nuclear reactors i mean, our electric grid problem, but there are no nuclear reactors connected to it. And the same scenario in which the electric grid going down is compounded by the fact that there are nuclear reactors that are depending on it, right? I far prefer the former scenario, right? It is much less likely to turn into an existential level crisis if we have only the electric grid, which will be a disaster, and thousands, maybe more than that, maybe millions would die, right. right? But that is survivable, right? You compound that with these doomsday devices that you've hooked into a grid that is insecure, even relative to solar storms that are happening relatively regularly.
0: I mean, doomsday device. I know that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's whole, a
1: prejudicial that's term. It's a for me. bit,
0: I mean, we're talking about we're talking about like like keeping some pools of we're keeping some pools of water
1: going, right? No, we're talking about many pools of water, geographically distributed. 60 sites. Managed, you are talking about pools that have to be successfully managed by a government that hasn't noticed the problem with the electrical grid that it could solve for a small number of billion dollars and year after year does not. Okay, but you trust that government to keep those pools cool?
0: Well, I mean, I'm trying to like, it, it's like we're, first of all, we're in a really wild scenario, which nope. is that you're asking me to think of a scenario where electricity, a third of our electricity has been lost for multiple years. Is that so what the scenario if, if, is? if I can compel you. I'm um, just trying to understand. I don't even know if have scenario we're talking about this. It sounds like, I thought what you were saying is. Solar storm
1: okay. knocks out a third of the electrical grid and it doesn't come back up. For five years. Let's say six months. Okay. So six months. So we have six months. Uh, by the way, I don't think there's any scenario that we have planned for that brings it back up in six months. But let's just be generous. Okay, so we, have, six months. so we
0: have six months to keep 20 nuclear power plants, uh, cooling pools operating. To keep them
1: operating without a failure long enough to cause one to drop.
0: Okay, why are you more worried about that than all of the other things that could cause chaos okay. in the system? Um, I'm not saying you shouldn't be worried about it. It just seems highly, like, it just seems, I'm curious about the selective concern. Here's why. It seems here's like why. it'd be displaced from apocalyptic concerns about nuclear weapons.
2: As an
1: evolutionary biologist, yeah. I'm very concerned
0: about anything that could
1: end humanity. But I'm, that... Wait, wait. Yeah. <laughs> the nucle- The electric grid going down without nuclear reactors plugged into it will be a catastrophe. But it's a survivable catastrophe.
0: Yes, right
1: that heartens me. The Holocaust was a catastrophe, but we survived all of us, including Jews okay much better than a scenario that causes us to blank out. So anytime we set something in motion that takes a disaster and turns it into an existential threat to humanity, my sense is, hey wait a minute, how sure are we that that's a good idea
0: but how I mean what, but how does I mean, it seems to me you're you're the, the, you're saying that the that the keeping those pools operating, that the pools uh, the cooling water pools of the used fuel rods, yeah, at a time when for managing those for six months, I don't I'm trying to see how that's an existential threat to humanity. Oh, because first of all. I mean, I'm not even sure they're nice If they were all on fire for six months, I'm not even sure that's nice. Ah, well, that we could humanity. talk about. That we could talk about. Yeah. I and mean, frankly, I think that's actually an open question.
1: If you yeah. took all of the spent nuclear fuel and
0: liberated it into the in the pools, in the pools, not in the because we've agreed that the that the canisters are fine. There's no scenario for those to catch on fire. Okay,
1: okay. Let's let's grant that. Okay. First of all, I'm not convinced that if civilization fails because of a massive release of Radioactive particles that ultimately we don't see two hundred years down the road. The dry cast storage fails too.
0: But what would that even look like? I mean, you just have like I mean, what do you mean the the can? I mean, what would that look like? Fails? It's in steel and concrete.
1: Well, it is in steel and concrete. So, Um, and like let's say it was exposed to the air. Like, what would it do? Well, my point to you, if if you've got something with a two hundred thousand year half life in these things then even if it's 5,000 years or 10,000 years down the road where the thing is broken open by natural processes, then that's still an issue. Now, it may not be an issue from your perspective. Because well, I'm just too- trying to figure out
0: like what it does. I mean, in other words, like lead um, is, it's not like there's no half-life. It's just per- it's just a permanent, right, permanent, permanent toxin. Yeah. And so I don't understand even how you get to a scenario where the stuff in the, like if you break open all of the the steel and concrete canisters, 200, and also like, why are we worried about 200 years from now? Who, I, mean, like I think we're talking about a, a solar storm that hits today. Right,
1: We're well, first of all, just teleport yeah. yourself into my shoes here for a second. My feeling is there's actually a fairly simple calculation, which is until you can tell me what we do with the spent fuel that actually stabilizes it so human vigilance is not required to keep it from spilling. Wait, wait, why?
0: Why? Why can't can't we rely on human vigilance?
1: Uh, Because the very same people that you think are going to be good enough to manage 60 fuel pools that can't endure a single failure to keep water on them the same people that you have charged with the job of doing that have failed to notice the problem with the nuclear grid they have failed to mandate well we'll find out if they have failed to mandate that all fuel that can be moved to dry cask storage should be moved there as quickly yeah. as possible right my point is these people are failing all the time all around us and it is bad when they fail at the level of um, vaccine safety and effectiveness. But it could be catastrophic if they fail at the level of nuclear power plants and vigilance in the face of a totally foreseeable but apparently unforeseen uh, failure of the. Grave. See,
0: I think you're displacing your anxieties about nuclear weapons and war onto the plants. I'm really not. Well, I know you think you're not, but I'm suggesting you might be because you keep now. As we get to the, the the fuel rods in the con- in the canisters. Yeah. Like, first of all. But let's, 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 uh, I'll grant you Let those go. Okay. Let 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 those go. Yeah, yeah. I'm not
1: sure that I should,
2: but.
0: Yeah. I mean, I just kind of go, I mean, I think it's interesting psychologically because I hear it a lot. People go, well, what are they going to, what are they going to do like a thousand years from now to protect people from those canisters? And I'm kind of like. Yeah. But yeah, but here's the thing,
1: right? I get why that seems like, look, what we're going to do is come up with a solution good enough that we can come up with a better solution later. I get that thing. Yeah, yeah. On the other hand, we've done that. We've done it and, with the Whip Project in New Mexico. Yeah, and it's amazing. Oh, it's beautiful, except for the motherfucker who put kitty
2: litter it, in. The, yeah, oh, we I mean, so, should have seen
0: that coming. The no, cat litter. No, no, I'm not saying that. I mean, I'm not, I mean it's more like. It's more like, how many how many people die from that? Uh that's not the point.
1: It's it's the so comments. I need to explain this to my audience okay. so they understand why, yeah, yeah. why it is or yeah. is not the point. Yeah. You can explain why it, okay. is, <laughs> it is not the point. Yeah. But um, The WIPP project was a salt cavern yeah. that was supposed to be used to store byproducts of the manufacture of nuclear weapons. Yeah. And so stuff like the contaminated clothing and other materials were put into barrels, that were moved into these salt caverns right. and when the idea was stabilize them for 10,000 years. Right. And then there's the funny question, Well, what kind of signage do you put up so that people 5,000 years from now know not to dig here because there's stuff buried that they really yeah. don't want to unbury. So that's an interesting thought experiment and all of that. Right. But and the fact is people in New Mexico fought the WIP project. They said it's not good enough, blah, blah, blah. Couldn't quite articulate the argument. And then what happens? they run out of cat litter. Now, cat litter was being used, clay cat litter was being used to absorb liquids in the barrels that they put in the salt caverns, which is pretty cool. Cat litter has surface area. It's useful stuff for soaking up things. But somebody who wasn't too swift, they ran out of clay cat litter. Now, my argument would be, there's no way they should have been using cat litter. They should have been ordering stuff that was mandated to be of a particular nature so that nobody could possibly have made this error. But somebody was like, well, we're out of cat litter. Hey, Fred, why don't you go down to Kmart and get us some more cat litter? And Fred went down to Kmart and bought, quote unquote, organic cat litter, which is all very funny until you understand that what organic means in this case is not that it was made without pesticides, but that it's made of organic material like wood pulp from newspapers or wood chippings or whatever. So they put the wood based cat litter in the barrel to absorb the stuff. And wouldn't you know it chemistry unfolded because of course it would unfold. And so there were gases produced. And one of these barrels exploded and the exploded barrel ejected plutonium and people were contaminated. Plutonium was showing up in their pee and all of that. So the point is, look, you've got a salt cavern that we thought was pretty good for 10,000 years, except it wasn't even good for a century.
0: Well, except for here, here, let me me try to paint a different picture, Um, Manhattan Project. Yeah. Project Make the Bomb during World War II yep. spread across multiple sites yeah. including Hanford in Washington yep. Los Alamos in New Mexico and Oak Ridge in Tennessee yep. those sites particularly Hanford yeah. are just a nightmare of toxicity
1: the Flues uranium of m- radioactive material yeah. migrating underground towards tons the Columbia tons. River the World
0: War, it's World War II and they're yeah. just throwing shit everywhere whatever um, uranium mining no protective gear yeah Um, fast forward, but look at that picture, 1941 to 45, and then you look at how they mine uranium today, how they operate nuclear power plants today. Yeah. The qual, it's like looking at jet planes. Yeah. Look, I love, I love your jet plane now. No, no, but yeah. So, so, but just to kind of go, so, you know, but yeah, we had the Dreamliner. And they put these fucking lithium batteries in. The And everybody knows lithium when it combines with water. Yeah. You have problems, you have fires, you have jet planes go down. Well, wait a second, I thought that jet travel had become a lot safer, and yet here we have Dreamliners uh going down. Yep. And Boeing, I mean Boeing is now impacted and whatever. But at the same time, we go, um, we love jet travel. And the difference between jet travel and nuclear, I think is not the higher mortality, because that mortality's higher with the jet travel. Sure. It's the fact the that- higher nuclear... mortality are measured instantaneous. Yeah, okay. But it's the, it's the well, you're not counting the pollution on yet, but okay. Um, but it's the association of, it's the reminder that with nuclear, it's opened up a whole new world of danger, of a potential, I agree, I don't think it's paranoid, a potential for civilization, to end. Uh, annihilation. Yeah. For annihilation. And that's absolutely terrifying at a species-being level beyond So it's so unconscionable. It's not our yeah. right
1: to take out the species. Right. There are a lot of people who have yet yeah. to live who have a right to
2: live. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Um, and so that weighs heavily on us, as it should. But then there's displacement, psychological displacement onto, so. the, onto the energy. And it's not to say there's no dangers with the energy. It's just to say they're not... Um, it's not, it's not uh, sweet generous. It's not, it's not, there's other, if the grid, if there's a big earthquake, a big one in California. Yeah. And we have big problems. Diablo Canyon is gonna be one of the safest places to be in California. And if there's, if the grid goes down, I suspect it would be that the nuclear power plants would actually be in better shape than the rest of the grid. And that we would get them up and running right away. I mean, look at, you know, here, here's another example. Russia invades Ukraine. Yeah. There's a firefight in front of Chernobyl. One of the administrative buildings catches on fire. Everybody spazzes out, but the behavior from both the Ukrainians and the Russians was, we're going to take really good care of Chernobyl. Yeah. Um, Now, there's some evidence that there was some digging on site. I haven't looked into it yet. That may have exposed some of the Russian soldiers to some higher radioactivity. But the interesting thing about um, the—and there's a bunch of nuclear plants in Ukraine— um, but the interesting thing about the behavior from both sides is that nobody wanted to create a nuclear disaster. Right. It's in nobody's interest to create a nuclear yeah. disaster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's a better metaphor for the situation. Well, look, there are a couple
1: things I got to say to you. Yeah. One, Italy, I may be the only one, but you're barking up the wrong tree with respect to displacement. My fear is really about losing control okay. of nuclear material and the consequences. Okay. While they may not. Um, have All I
0: can do is take your word.
1: Yeah. On the other hand, I mean, there's. I, I'd, tell ya, I'd tell you, I'd tell you if you if you'd hit uh, an actual. But you know, let's, it's hard to know. Yeah, it's
0: hard to know. I don't.
1: I don't think it's hard to know in my case because okay. I've thought so deeply, and yeah. you know, I'm not arguing that the answer with respect to nuclear weapons is clear. In my, yeah. you know, I agree with you, and I've done the analysis myself. I yeah. believe that the net impact of nuclear yeah. weapons was probably a reduction in war yeah, over yeah. my lifetime. And so, you know, yes, I think ultimately yeah. they will be used in earnest and that that's unacceptable. But I can't say, um, well, that's interesting to me.
0: What? Which we didn't, which we didn't, it was a disagreement that we didn't get back to. Right, right. But, but again, my, my, I have a simple model. Of no, no, I know. I know. I know. And we're, we're, well, look, we've, we've, we've covered it, but let's come to the issue of, um, okay, well, I want to get to, well, there's two things, two questions there. Yeah. One is what is our disagreement? It, maybe it's not. It may not be important. Around you think it sounds like what I hear you saying is eating is inevitable. That if you have nuclear weapons, they will be
2: detonated.
0: Yes. So that's the first thing. Eventually. I don't think so. Okay, I don't think so. But the second issue is, what do you want to do with nuclear energy?
1: Uh, I let's I, do that one first, and then let's come back. That, one, that, that one's easy. Okay, that one's easy. Yeah. I think we are spending far too little on nuclear fusion. Okay. And so, look, I have a basically... So, first of all, yeah, I believe our system has to change. I'm a, uh, a founding member of the Group B movement. Uh, I believe that we are looking for a civilization-level change. It has to be opt-in. It has to protect human freedoms. It has to be architected to be evolutionarily stable. But the part of me that is thinking about issues like this is like, how do we get through the bottleneck of the 21st century so that we're around three centuries from now, mm-hmm. right? So I do worry about those long-term issues and I worry about them a lot. Um, so that may be part of why we aren't seeing eye to eye here. But I would say- I mean, I would like to know more about what that
0: is because I don't know what
1: that is. Well, let's put it this way. We, yeah. s- we spent, this. this statistic is now old, it's probably, uh, eight or nine years old now, but we were spending something like one hundred and twenty billion dollars a year globally on text messages, right? We could be spending that on fusion, and we're not, right? We're yeah. spending a PIS. So your
0: argument is that we're underinvesting in fusion, and if we pour more money into fusion, then we're more likely to get fusion sooner.
1: Well, yes, and I know that there's a diminishing returns problem in there. There's no yeah, amount of money we could pour in fusion yeah.
0: that causes us to find it tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, right.
1: So. I do think we should be spending tremendously more on fusion. Yeah. I think in the meantime, we, we should be shifting everything we do that can be done electric to electric, which obviously creates problems with limits on things like lithium. But um, nonetheless, I believe that what we want is an electrically powered world to the extent possible. And then we want fusion to be the plug and play solution that takes all of that electric stuff and doesn't require us to do anything new with it. We just turn it on. Right. Right. So that I do think is the okay. the issue. And we do have to get through the failure of governance issue, which is likely to take us out in the meantime, which is part of why I was so enthusiastic about your campaign for governor.
0: What about the, now, You often people that have your view are in favor of alternative to the existing water-cooled fission nuclear. Um, Let's the, put it this way. Yeah. I'm, which I'm skeptical yeah. of, but which nonetheless, I I'm I'm to the position.
1: Cards on the table. Yeah. I don't trust the nuclear industry at all. Okay. I don't think we should be keeping the current reactors open because I think their designs are all flawed and they do—they are like ticking time bombs. And I know we could do vastly better. Okay. Right? Were the nuclear industry to be, and frankly, you know, it's evolution in the market that turns an industry into a danger. I'm not arguing that they're bad people, but I am arguing that the profit motive causes the wrong corners to be cut. Um, but were we to have some mechanism for governing nuclear fission, and we were to upgrade to fourth generation technologies, liquid salt, thorium, yeah. you know, closed fuel cycle, whatever it is, right? There are things I'm open to an argument about, right? How do we how do we get through the gap between now and the beginning of viable fusion? I'm open to the possibility that there are fission-based answers. I don't think they're uranium-based, but I could be convinced. It
0: uranium, the uranium thorium thing—it's not about the fuel; it's about the it's about the cooling. It's about the cooling
1: and yeah. and and the what happens in the event of a meltdown and, and yeah. things like this. So um, I'm open to the possibility that there are fusion-based technologies, though. in principle I would rather we not have to use fission because Mm -hmm. it's all too dangerous I think. But the uranium stuff and especially the current generation of reactors that we have are my real concern. Mm -hmm. Right? They are too dangerous and look-
0: So you want to shut them down? I mean like how quickly would you want to do that? It's like 20% of our electricity. Well, 60% of our zero carbon power. It's 20% of our
1: electricity. On the other hand, we are so wasteful of electricity that you really don't need any more power. And I i understand that what I'm saying yeah. is a fantasy here. But the point is, could you use 20% less electricity if you were just more thoughtful about your own life? Yeah, you could. Maybe you couldn't, but most of us could, right? So the idea that it's 20% of our energy um, means, well, thank goodness it's not more because 20% is an amount that you could just be efficient about. Right. I do think that there is value in alternative technologies, you know, wind and solar and tidal and all of these things. No, I don't think it's a silver bullet. I think the silver bullet is fusion.
2: Mm-hmm. That's okay. what I think.
0: Okay. okay. All right. Well, let's get to the, um, uh, we, so we don't agree on that, which is fine. Yeah, But I think we've achieved disagreements as we would Productive say. Productive disagreements. We've achieved, yeah, but yeah. we've gotten to the bottom of it. Yeah. Um, what makes you so sure that if you have nuclear weapons that they'll be used? I uh, detonate. Oh, I, I, think you're, I
1: think you're sure of it, too. I think you just no, don't, I don't it. No, no, I
0: don't. I don't think so. No, here's why. Yeah.
1: Um, <laughs> You said yourself that in order for deterrence to work, yes. you have to have fear that has to be based on the possibility that they would be used. Correct. So if it's a possibility, how long do you have to extend time before that possibility becomes probable?
0: It's Zeno's you know, paradox. Never, I mean, it's like... No, it's not. You just... I mean, why... No, because how just low, possible doesn't mean this happening. How
1: low can the risk be and still function as a deterrent? How I mean, close to zero can you get without losing the
0: deduction? Well, so first of all, I mean, it's worth pointing out that it's an unresolvable... It's not something that you and I are going to be able to muster any evidence right. to, no, to it's resolve. A, it's a thought problem. Yeah. Um, it's a thought problem. I mean, it's an interesting one because I've never... I, I It's in the literature. Like, this is all the books, basically, that have ever been written on bomb. Um it's in there, there's a lot of people that say it, and it always struck me as a statement of faith, rather than a statement of... What? That... Um, no, mine's mine's have, a statement of math. But it's not math. I mean, math, it's a statement of... If there was a one
1: in a billion chance of a nuclear exchange, would it function as a deterrent?
0: I think it's higher than that. Yeah, how high? Um... I, it's fair. I mean, look, we're just not, I think, I think there's a risk of um, scientizing this and um, and getting, creating false precision by quantifying it. No, no, it's literally like, it's kind of like. No, no, no. Um, look, I'm not making an argument that yeah.
1: I know or that the number is yeah. even stable enough to yeah. estimate. Yeah, 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 yeah. My point is, if the number is. Not zero. Half a percent a year. We're talking about a very short ride, right? How many years do you get to play that game? Yeah.
0: Well, let me let me introduce another piece of this. Let's say so the two countries that uh, two I would say two countries that are most at risk of nuclear conflict, and I'm not alone in this, um, are India and Pakistan. Yep. Um, they get into so first of all they keep fighting wars, and the number of people that die in the wars goes down. Yep and um, recently there was a there was a you know a battle between india and china and it was like like a joke like in terms of because both sides are like we don't want this to escalate right so but let's say it did and you had a nuclear exchange between india and pakistan why do we why do we think it would a escalate Beyond Kashmir, oh, it might be, not. It might not. Yeah. So in other words, it's it's actually. I think it's important because um, there's sort of a common idea that if anybody use, and I actually there's a there's a concept called nuclear taboo. Yeah. Which is that, uh, which I, I agree exists. Which is that leaders um, actually don't want to use nuclear weapons because if they do, they would violate a taboo. Yep. Now Putin did violate a taboo by invading Ukraine, um, and he's being punished for it. But it's not inconceivable that you could imagine that in 10, 20 years that Europe and Russia would be back to where they were in 2021. Yeah. But there is an argument that if they use the nuclear weapons, they would be more like Nazi Germany in their ostracization so, but, the, but I think part of the nuclear tablet that I don't agree with, or that's part of that story, which is that if nuclear weapons are ever used, they would set off a chain reaction. And I think that chain reaction stuff comes from the apocalyptic mentality, which is more like, no, if nuclear... And Vipin Narong, who's a professor at MIT who I rely on a lot for nuclear games, you know, playing out games, he thinks that if a nuclear weapon were used, the whole world would just, everything would come to a halt and that there would be a huge effort to basically prevent escalation. I tend to think that's true. I'm not saying it's a guarantee against it, but I think that there is a non-apocalyptic scenario for nuclear weapons. I don't love it. I'm not promoting it. I don't think we should. um, I don't think it should reduce our fear of it. But I also think there's a a a risk of thinking that any use of nuclear weapons would necessarily escalate.
1: Yeah, I'm not. uh, I'm uh, agnostic about that. I think there's a possibility that once you know. Let's put it this way everybody likes being in the club where they're from a nation that has never used these things right we're the yeah. only nation who has yeah um and as soon as that number of nations that have used them goes up i think it does do something to the taboo but no i don't necessarily believe in fact i don't i would expect probably not that if somebody launched nuclear weapons that it would necessarily result in, you know, an exchange yeah. of everything we got. Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: Like Russia could use tactical nukes in Ukraine, and I don't think the United States is going to respond by bombing Moscow. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, okay. I, I, okay. I think that's pretty clear. So we're agreeing on that. Yeah. Um, so, um, well, to recap, I mean, it seems like we have an open question around what happens to the 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 cooling fuel rods in the pools. And you've inspired me to have a better answer than the one I have right now. And we uh, we have a disagreement about what we should do with today's nuclear plants. I think we should try to make them safer and better and expand them. And you wanna you would like to see them, if not shut down overnight, phased out and more money put into fusion. Well, I would like
1: to see them phased out. Mm-hmm. I am willing to entertain the question of whether or not there are 4th uh, Gen nuclear mm-hmm. solutions that are worth utilizing, right. Right. but ultimately I would like us to have our eyes on the prize, which I believe is fusion, Yeah. And I would like us to prepare for a fusion world by moving I mean, you know, How much of a hardship is it having an electric car? My feeling is it's kind of awesome. You can say well, the same thing yeah. about motorcycles. As far as I know, you can't say that about planes. You can say yeah. about boats, but there's a yeah. large fraction of the world that could be rendered electric. And then the point is whether that's fourth gen.
0: It's fishing. tricky with lithium, but yeah. Well, it's we tricky. we have issues. We have big issues right yeah. now. We yeah. we have big issues. big issues. I'm not arguing. Might be more hydrogen. I'm, I'm a little bit more like a hydrogen. I think I'm a. I think hydrogen was early, not wrong. My view towards hydrogen is similar to, to fusion, which is that, I think we'll have it, just not Interesting. a thing. I thing.
1: Yeah. I was a fan of hydrogen. Uh, I must say my um, excitement about it dropped when I saw Elon is uh, doubtful about its utility. I would love to get you two in a conversation yeah. about, about helium.
0: I, I, yeah. yeah when we're talking about hydrogen? But, about hydrogen. Yeah, yeah. helium, uh, we have yeah, a different yeah, yeah. problem. But he, we, he has a big lithium problem right now. Yep. You know, a huge lithium problem. Um. But let me let me uh, come let me come to this other uh, question of climate, which yeah. is um, I think that there is a trade off then in terms of nuclear acceptance and climate alarmism, yep, and that a more consistent position, um, ironically, to, and I think it's proof that people are not consistent in their views. Climate alarmists should be more pro-nuclear. Oh. Wow. I I have heard this
1: argument from you, and I I don't disagree about this.
0: But that that climate skeptics would be um, much more comfortable being anti-nuclear, but they line up the opposite of that, which which means that there's something else going on, and it has to do with, I think, deeper worldview issues around trust in institutions, around energy abundance, around system, about belief in the system. And so your views, I think, I think you're more um, uh, skeptical of the broader system that we live in, of the civilizational system, than we live in. And I mean that that part of me is, it seems like there's part of you that is the the evergreen part, the 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 tradition, you know, the traditional environmentalist. That, you don't mean
1: evergreen college. You mean yeah, yeah.
0: Well, yeah, but I mean, there's, I think there's, a, I think you have a. Um, I mean, this totally respectfully, like yeah, you have a kind of. Um, uh s- s- Skepticism of our civil of our high energy civilization that is 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 very mainstream on the left. Well, but, yeah, I have a
1: uh, healthy respect for unintended consequences, which is often yeah. not a feature of the left. Right, the left tends to be very excited about solutions and under aware of the danger of unintended mm-hmm. consequences. It goes the other way with nuclear. The left has traditionally been anti-nuclear. Um, but again, yeah. I, I don't even consider myself anti-nuclear. I consider myself radically pro-nuclear, as long as we're talking about fusion.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, but I mean, I kind of look at, I mean, I wonder if you would agree that there's, that if I were to look at your thinking, that you've got a skepticism of our system that extends towards vaccines, nuclear fission, um, the electrical grid. hmm um deep ocean drilling uh Uh
1: you know credit default swaps and leveraging in markets yeah let's put it this way i i think i have a very rational approach to this which is i'm watching the scale of the disasters that we inflict on ourselves get larger over my lifetime i'm watching the number of people and the interconnectedness of those people go up in a way that is clearly dangerous and i'm trying to look i think yeah if we recognize the size of the problem we are creating for ourselves then it doesn't become a world of austerity on the other side of it it becomes a uh a renaissance right where suddenly there is a lot to be done upgrading our civilization so it is no longer rickety and fragile retooling it so that rights are protected in a way
0: that we can live well we can yeah. live lightly upon the earth but it's a small but it's more small as beautiful it's more of a small as beautiful vision than a high energy civilization vision no I don't think that okay uh, no look I, I'm you a, don't know decentralized well let's put it this way I think we I want
1: everything that can rationally be decentralized decentralized but I think there's an awful lot that has to be governed at a higher scale okay um, you do Oh yeah. Okay.
0: Okay. Like because I mean the way I think of it is um uh economies of scale um where you where you have higher levels of economies of scale and centralized production allow for more distributed consumption meaning we can reduce the cost of food and energy and products when their manufacture is more centralized.
1: Yep. Uh, Look, I think we've got, you know, my my dissertation work was on trade-offs. And I think we have the tensions between a lot of competing concerns. Yeah. When it comes to the governance issue, I subscribe to something that I borrowed from the Catholics, interestingly, Mm -hmm. which is a a principle called subsidiarity, which is everything should be governed at the lowest level that it can effectively be governed. Yeah. And for some things that happens to be global, but it means that you should not default. Okay. you, you, You know.
0: From You're more credits. flexible than than traditional greens would be. I'm I'm of the same. I think I like that yeah. principle. I'm the same way. Um, now, but what about for for production? Is production governed? If it's production part of, of it? energy or production? of energy and food and products, let's say.
1: Well, elements of it need to be governed, right? It's really easy to externalize harms. You know. Yeah. Uh, You know, nicotine. Yeah, yeah. Regulated, right? So there's stuff that I want to see forbidden because it's too damaging to contemplate. Yeah, right. That can't be done locally. Yeah. Um. But frankly, I, you know, again, I want everything as low level as possible. But there are certain things that only the global level will do, and that frightens me because at this moment I'm watching a push towards global level governance that I think has very little to do with externalities and protecting us and has a lot to do with centralizing power. Yeah. So I'm sympathetic to the idea of, hey, nothing, no yeah. global governance, but right. on the other hand we're, we're messing with global processes. I mean, it's interesting
0: because, of course, let's come back to the, just to come back to the COVID stuff, because there's a way in which there's certainly an argument, and I'd be curious if you disagree, that regardless of all the stuff that happens, nations and states that they decided how to respond to COVID based on California, like in other words, uh, California culture determined how we responded to COVID more than Gavin Newsom. And the Swedish culture determined is why they had a different response to COVID than, say, uh, uh, Germany or South Korea. These things come from within, they're not imposed by, they're not imposed by. WHO has less of a role than we think, and culture has more of a role. Unfortunately, somebody made it virtually
1: impossible for you to get ivermectin, even though it might have been just the thing to protect your family.
0: But is it hard to get?
1: Yeah, very. Okay. It was confiscated at the border. Yeah. Um, your, pharmac- your doctor could say, yes, this is what you need. Prescribe it, and your pharmacist would refuse to fill the prescription. They made it extremely difficult. But
0: whether or not there were school lockdowns or school
1: mm-hmm. closures yep. came from within. There was certainly a... Uh, patchwork of different reactions across the country, but certain things were centralized, like Mm -hmm. thou shalt not have ivermectin. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So it's complicated. Yeah. Well, Brett, what a fascinating, what a wonderful conversation. Yeah, this has been a great conversation. I'm really glad we did it. Me too. Um, And uh, I do think, I'm very curious to circle back after we have both brushed up a little bit on the places that we recognize were a little hazy. Yeah. um, Because... Well, frankly, what I hope is that people watching this conversation somewhere in this, they will think, huh, wouldn't it be cool if governance sounded like that on the inside? People comparing perspectives, hearing each other out, realizing what they don't know rather than what clearly does happen, which is people who have a financial interest are the only people in the room. And their blind spots are ignored because it's uh, yeah. you know, the way the way they sport. don't
0: trust uh, they don't trust the deliberation right um, and they don't trust uh, I think the, the 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 yeah the political leaders don't trust that they could say something on a podcast and um, and then have a different view in some other yeah in yeah. some other contexts. People, one of the things people said to me, and I took it as a compliment, was like, "I can't see Gavin Newsom sitting down with Joe Rogan for." Three hours and being able to right. have the conversation. I was with um, Adam Carolla, who's a you know a sort of a center right yep. talk show host in LA, and we talked for like an hour. And he they were just like it's so different from when Gavin Newsom came in. It was just trying to like repeat his talking points in different ways, but there wasn't even any any curiosity or well, you, you know uh, what Michael Kinsley said.
1: Uh, he defined the term. He's a, a gaff is when a politician tells the truth. Yeah, right. And so the problem right. with sitting down with Joe Rogan and the whole beauty of Joe Rogan or not yeah. the whole beauty, but a large part of it yeah. is that you've got a you know an open conversation. Nobody, including Joe, knows exactly where it's going to head. Right. And so the point is, you can't do that on script. For one thing, it would be yeah. deathly boring. Yeah. Right? And for another thing, um, people talk when they're not. Faced with a list of talking points that they're supposed to get through, and so yeah, you know, Gavin Newsom sitting down with,
0: yeah, Joe Rogan, but maybe, but I, but then again, I didn't make it into the runoff, so maybe the maybe the lesson is that that's not how politicians are able to do it. Well, but that's just the thing, right? Yeah. Those of
1: us who see the problem with the duopoly need to level up strategically. Yeah. We need to figure out how to confederate
0: because, yeah. well, about somebody needs to. Yeah, well, we'll need we still need somebody to prove the the possibility. Donald Trump proved the possibility. Yeah, I guess so. That's right. And I guess to be fair, some amount of the chaos was him thinking out loud, right? I mean look, Donald- it was like the speculating about solutions to COVID.
1: Right. You know, I um, mean some of you know some of those things he was right about. Hyperxychloroquine yeah. was right, but the drug became politically so toxic that nobody right. would touch it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but you know, the thing is Trump proved it was possible to beat the duopoly, but the personality characteristics that allowed him to do that were exactly the ones that should have kept him out of office.
2: Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So what
1: we need is somebody who can learn the lesson of Trump having beaten the duopoly and mm-hmm. carry um, a character that is capable of handling the responsibility of the office uh, along with them and you know i believe it's possible i believe the number of people who can see the necessity for this is going up so i um, hope
0: you're right brother yeah amen thanks to that
1: you. all right it's been great it's been great Brett. Um, pleasure yeah it's thanks been for real pleasure i'm, I'm glad Brad. we finally met and I, I look forward to the next one me
0: too all right that's great
1: be well everyone